I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. everyone welcome to another edition of creek devil we've done something a little bit different with this show folks for this first segment we're actually going to have three interviews so having said that tom would you introduce our guest yeah absolutely this is sue and sue is a special guest sue grew up will i believe within about 10 miles of where you grew up and she also had an encounter i believe um possibly in the same area or near the same area um, so we're going to welcome her aboard in just a moment, but first I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, let us know, click the like and subscribe button if you haven't subscribed. And if you want to support the show, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. And we've got a link in the description. Sue, um, you and I talked briefly, but I didn't, I don't know what happened. Um, tell us. Tell us a little bit about your encounter. Okay. Well, um, I was young, very young. Um, what, I lived about 10 miles from where William lived. Uh, he lived in Graham, and I lived in Stanaway. And um, I think the Fort Lewis Reservation went, did it go that far down where you, uh, Will, where, William, where you turned off? Uh, did you go down Mountain Highway down to Graham, right? Yeah, we, well, to get to my place, we'd go down 224th past Bethel High School out that direction. Okay, so you turn on 224th. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so there you go. The reservation goes uh, down to 224th. Were you far down 224th from there? Uh, we were on the other side of Meridian down towards Thrift. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. See, my brother lived on Lake Whitman. Oh, okay. Like Kapowson, by Kapowson Lake. Yeah, yeah, that's not too far from where we were. Yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up by the railroad tracks on Mountain Highway. You know, the old train bridge, bridges, oh, yeah. right? Right, right. Yeah, so I lived in that little house right there by the train bridge. Oh. And um, we had the reservation in our backyard. We had five acres, the neighbor had ten acres. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up there. I lived there 16 years and as kids we slept out all the time we the minute the weather started warming up and um we got weekends we would sleep out and then when school was out i think we slept out every night (laughs) but we were always outside always always and we'd go down the tracks and we're not supposed to go in the reservation but of course we did because we weren't supposed to of course and um So we were really uh, adventurous, and um, we would go out in the woods a lot, and um, it was kind of funny because I didn't realize this until I got older that uh, um, 
we would smell, we would smell something really bad. I mean, it was me and my niece. She was two years younger than me. She was my, like, we were like Yogi Bear and Boo Boo. I mean, we were always together. And so we were out there and we'd always smell something really just foul. And we could never figure out what it was. But now that I'm older and I'm thinking, well, you know, here's that daily stay of Sasquatch has got a foul odor to them. And I thought, wow, I wonder if that's what we smelled. And uh, we were always um, very careful not to let nobody see us out there because we were young girls and um, we would see a lot of people come out in their vehicles. So we'd hide and stuff. But, um, yeah, so that was one thing. And then... um, I was eight years old when, um, as eight or nine, when Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson did the um, Patty's uh, video. And uh, I went to a birthday party with my best friend across the street. And we went to the drive, or not the drive-in, but the walk-in movie theater down there, where they found the stars. And um, I, they played that, that clip before the movie. I can't remember what movie it was, but I remember, um, you know, sitting there looking at that and and uh, seeing Patty walk in, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, as an eight or nine year old kid, I'm thinking, wow, that's really creepy, and I would hate to run out, would run into that, and um, but there was no sound, and um, so we didn't know what the Sasquatch sounded like, and so um, then. Uh, so that was like 68, I believe, and then around 1970, um, uh, our neighbors, um, we grew up with the neighbor boys next door. There's a bunch of neighbor boys, and they all grew up, and they all got married, and, and um, the parents died. And so the parents willed all of the guys pieces of property on on that all that 10 acres there. So they put their, moved out their new mobile home, and and he drew a well out there, one of the brothers, and um, and they had he brought his family out there to live. So um, I went over and over to their house and introduced myself because I wasn't shy. <laughs> and um, uh, then I started babysitting for him. So I actually had my kid nine years old. <laughs> so I babysat for him for a couple of years, and um, and um, so what we would do is. Uh, when they would come home on the weekend, because they only went out on weekends, of course, because they both worked during the week. But um, on weekends, they would come home really late. And um, she, the the lady, her name was Chris, would walk me to the fence. And then from the fence line, I would run on down to my house. And so this, their trailer was probably parked like 50 50 feet from the fence farm to the reservation, so it was all wooded. And um, it, it could be a really clear night out, and um, you could see really far, but when you got to the, look at the um, reservation, it just was all dark in the trees. And then we had, they had a three-wire, uh, barbed-wire fence there. Um, so you could, it was a bit hard to get over the fence and out there. And um, so uh, it was um, probably, I'm guessing maybe, um, I know we were out of school. I'm guessing probably late June. Um, I went to babysit for them. They went to the tavern. And um, they didn't come home till like 
two o'clock in the morning. And um, uh, I had been there for hours, and I never heard nothing outside. I I never heard anything to make me want to look outside or think that there was something out there or anything. And um, so uh, they came home, and the husband was pretty, he was pretty drunk, and he kind of passed out on the couch. He was smart to get home, and I grabbed my coat. We didn't have a flashlight or nothing. And we really didn't need one. It was like a clear, nice, beautiful summer evening. And um, the cars weren't even going by a mountain highway, which was a very busy road. There was no cars even. It was very quiet out. And um, so we proceeded to go outside and go to the fence. And we were talking and laughing. And it was something we'd done a million times. And all of a sudden, um, behind us, because that's where it was coming from, I was sure of it, uh, we got this, just this long, big bellow of a, just a yell, growl. And while it was doing that, screaming at us, I was afraid to look. I didn't even want to see what it looked like because it was, its scream was so terrifying. They call it sirens. You know, are you familiar with uh, that, that that name of us? Uh, they make us as a siren, William. Yeah, right, right. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you. <laughs> yes, I can hear you. Hey, I got I got to oh. ask you real quick. What what What's that? what year was this? Do you remember? I believe it was about, uh, it was nice. It had to have been around 69 or 70 because what I did is, um, Camp Sistus was my, when I was in sixth grade or fifth grade or fifth grade, we went to Camp Sistus. And that mm-hmm. was another time that they, they talked about the Sasquatch when we went to camp, showed us the cast of it. And, um, so, um, you know, like things are starting to fall into place there. So, this big scream that I got out of the woods at me, um, I'm thinking that's what it was. Because it, when it screamed at us, we couldn't move. We were like, we froze. We looked at each other's faces, and we could both, looking at each other, can tell we didn't know what we were hearing. And I wasn't, I just knew whatever it was, it was huge. It was big. It had lungs like no other. Because the sound almost kind of penetrated in my chest. It was so loud. And we could not move, which was so weird when it stopped screaming. And you know, William, it, if it would have not made a sound, we would have never known it was out there. We would have had no idea. I didn't smell nothing bad. Um, I didn't, like I said, never heard nothing out there all night. And had it just been quiet, we would have never known it was there. But it it was like it did it didn't want it wanted us it wanted us to know that it was there, and that's what was really terrifying was hearing the scream that was coming out of it, and knowing you know thinking about later how he could he could have just been quiet and we would have never known. So I, the minute it stopped screaming, I, that's when I turned around and I was able to move. It was like oh my god. You know, run, I'm thinking, run. And so I just turned back around and ran right back to her house because 
her house was closer than my house. And she was right behind me. And I about ripped the door off the trailer trying to get into the house. I, I was so scared. And when we got in there, we're looking. We're, we're both saying, what was that? What was that? I don't know what that was. I have no clue what that was. And I said, I'm, I'm not going back out there either. Somebody's got to drive me home or somebody's got to walk me home with a gun because there's no way I'm going back out there. And um, so her brother, his brother, the guy, the father's brother lived up the front front house um, and they had gone out with them to, to go drinking that night. So we, she knew they were still up. So she called him and he came down with his gun and he walked me to my house. And I tried to describe to him what I heard, but I couldn't even imitate it. It was just beyond, I couldn't do it. And so he, you know, he, I don't know what he thought, <laughs> but um, I, I didn't care what he thought. I know what I heard and I was terrified. And <laughs> so I had remember when I was little, I had mentioned that to a couple people, like my friends at school and stuff. And they're like, Oh, you, you ain't here no Sasquatch. You're making fun of me and stuff. So I just, I shut up about it. I didn't say a word about it. I was like, okay, well, you feel to make fun of me. I'm, I don't think it's all that funny. It was pretty serious to me. But nobody wanted to believe me. You so, know what's interesting? Um, what's I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But what's interesting is we did a four-part series a few years ago with Rebecca Butello, who actually lived just down the road from you. Really? And, and they had a series of encounters uh, at their house. Yeah, she lived down by the junction of Mountain Highway and 224th. Okay. Well, I know exactly where she was. And, I, would, and I during had a that, route that I had yeah, to go during, get It was during that exact same time period, too. Exact same time period. That is, that you know, and this is what's so cool about, I am so shocked that you got, was it John Green from Canada? And Renee DeHinden, yeah. And they came all the way from Canada to your house? Well, they they were going to, uh, they were actually camped down at South Hill, uh, um, near oh, okay. 112th and, Sh where, where yeah. it used to be 112th yeah. and Shaw Road, that's where they were back oh, there okay. when the Puyallup Screamer stuff was going on in the early 70s. And they came in the summer of 1975, and it was after, um, Another person that we went to school with, a friend of mine who lived out in Graham, wrote to them. And I, I didn't know he was going to write to them. And, and they just, Renee, Renee Hinden actually showed up one day. And I recognized that, him from Green's books. That because, is so um, cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you talk about coincidence. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't know if you knew who Jim Dawson was, but um, he he gave me, he wanted to interview me. About what happened, so I did. I figured, you know, Jim doesn't really have any friends, so I thought, yeah, you know, it's not going to go anyplace. So he gave me John Green's books, and we didn't know there was really a whole bunch of stuff written about the subject. So um, apparently, he wrote to John Green, and when they were there, he gave to Hinden the letter, and to Hinden came out to our house, and then I went to their camp. That is so awesome. You went to their camp to look for Sasquatch. Well, we stayed, me and a friend stayed there a few days with them, and mm -hmm. I tagged along with Renee at night when he and, and um, Dennis Gates from Cedra Woolley were going out and searching the area at night. Mm -hmm. See, that's just it, you know, um, like, okay, I'm 62 years old now, so um, I, uh, about 
Well, back in uh, 2012, I, I moved down here in Lewis County um, back in 1999 after my mom passed away and got out of Spanway. It was just getting really overcrowded, and then the people were just, uh, it was just bad it's, there. It's crowded. it's crowded up there now. It is. And I, I my, my son at the time was about, oh, I'm guessing five, six, seven, maybe seven. When we moved down to, um, we actually moved to Toledo, Washington. And that's, I don't know, a hundred and about a hundred miles from, from on the freeway from, uh, Spanaway. And, um, so we're out in the country now, and uh, I mean, people have dairy farms and big fields, and uh, it's just wonderful. You don't see a cop. Maybe you see a cop the whole day. <laughs> the, the traffic is no traffic. It's just stress level goes down, and it's just just great area to live in, and I'll never go back there, but... Um, I noticed down here there was a lot more um there was a lot more wildlife um a lot more than my little town the Spanaway there and um, I mean even in Spanaway growing up I didn't even hear coyotes uh, out in the reservation which I found was kind of odd because I remember uh, one time spending the night up uh, up there on on uh, mountain highway uh, further down past I think well, probably around where the uh, reservation ends, where uh, I heard coyotes when I spent the night at my friend's house. And I said, what is that? And she's laughing. She goes, you never heard a coyote before? And I go, no, what is that? She's like, oh, there's these dogs that run around and they make all this. I said, that's the most weirdest noise I ever heard. <laughs> really weird. Just kind of creepy. And, you know, um, that, that whole region was very rural. I, I always tell people, they say, well, it doesn't look very rural now. And I said, no, but back in the 70s it was. It was. There was only 7,500 people in um, Spanaway back in the 60s. Yeah, Spanaway and, was um, the big city compared to Graham. <laughs> it was. It was. And now it's like 50,000 people there. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. The Spanaway Speedway, the racetrack there. They built all that, all that property, all that parking they had and everything. 250 houses they built in that, oh, on that. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Could you imagine? You know, it, was all, it was all farms where I lived. And, and they cut, cut trees down. They built houses on all of them. It's, it's awful to go through there now. Right. The trains don't even go down the track no more or nothing. Nope. nope. It's just crazy. But it's, um, so down here, I moved down to Lewis County and, um, you know, uh, my niece, she's always been a believer of Sasquatch and she believed my story about, you know, hearing it outside and screaming and stuff. And she just said, well, we're going to, we're going to run into one of them one day. So then she started getting involved with these people with BFRO that were going out and searching for them and teams and stuff. And she actually said she came to, she was right on the outskirts of Morton area. She was like, I can't tell you where it's at, but I'm like, yeah, you tell me where I'm going to make you. She was like, I can't tell you where it's at. I'm so close by your house is unbelievable. At the time we were living up in Mossy Rock and we lived way up at the end of the road and the road runs out, you run into our driveway and you followed our driveway all the way down and then that was it. And it was pretty quiet out there. And, um, but I living up in Moss Rock, I really had no experience or anything, but I was going over 
to a friend's house that lives on what they consider Bear Canyon. And it's where the Chilton River runs through. Um, uh, I've got Akinswa State Park. I believe um, there's uh, actually some sacred um, Indian burials around here, too, from the um, Indians. And um, so this river runs, and she's got 30 acres on her property. And um, so uh, one time we walked down to the river, and we noticed that there was a bunch of bushes and stuff pushed over. So it looked like something really big had went trampling through there. So we walk, once we got on onto the river where the sand and the rocks are from the trail, we proceeded to walk down that way to look at that, check the tree out. Well, she immediately looked when I was looking up there. Well, I started looking for feet prints out there, a footprint or something. And sure enough, there was a 16 and a half inch foot. We got a picture of it. And it was the only picture of a, uh, it was the only print that worked because um, then it turns into rock. There was no, it was, there was one foot where the sand was, all the sand was. And I put my foot that by it. We, we figured it was about 16 and a half inches. And, um, but what I, I think it did is it, it was just traveling across the river there, going somewhere, I don't know where. Yeah, they're around that area. I've been called on uh, sightings in that area before. I have. I've read a few stories in a few books where uh, people in Morton, the town of Morton, have seen seen them too. There was an interesting and, story uh, in Morton. Um, there's. I, I got called to this witness, and he told me that he was in a fishing boat. There was a little. Uh, I can't think what that pond is. There's a little pond there, on on the on the outskirts of town. And it's not very deep. Uh, it's only, Martin? yeah, it's only it's only four or five feet deep. Well, the guy was fishing, at, you know, just after first light one morning, and the, one of these creatures come wading through from one side to the other. Didn't pay any attention to him apparently, and and of course he got quite a shock out of it. <laughs> was it the duck ponds on um, uh, uh, Davis Lake Road? Yeah, probably. Because I just read, uh, I think it was in the BFRO where I was reading about the duck ponds. And it was funny because I, I work at the uh, Hampton Mills of Security. And I went in and asked the uh, uh, millwrights, where is, do you know uh, anything about a duck pond? And they go, oh, yeah, that's like a outskirts of uh, Morton there. On, uh, right, right on the, right, with, right on the edge of it, yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting. Cause I, and they're like, why? And I go, because I heard about Sasquatch out there. And the guys make fun of me at work about the Sasquatch. They don't believe in it. But I don't care if they make fun of me. It doesn't bother me because, you know, you've got to have an experience, I think. If you don't really believe in Sasquatch, well, you know, pray you get an experience because... That, you know, really, William, were you prepared to go popping through the bushes out there and running into some a big foot standing there staring at you? I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever? Did it ever cross your mind before that? That uh, no, we uh, were experience? we were out in the from the time I was a little boy. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we were always out in the woods. We had forty acres. Uh, on the between Graham and, and Ording, and then we moved up by Thrift when I was twelve. 
but mm-hmm. um, and it's it's only four miles away, so it wasn't very far. But I've no. been I've only I've been five six feet away from a black bear one time when I was a kid. And my sisters and I've uh, seen all kinds of stuff, you know, hunted deer and elk and fished and did all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And then, you know, when I was 16, I ran into those two things out just out past our barn. And, um, you know, that changes your whole outlook, let me tell you. It does. It's like, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, uh, Matthew Johnson. He's uh, uh, He has he has a uh, website, set, uh, I think it's Team Sasquatch or something. Um, something like that. Anyway, he's a psychologist and he had a uh, Sasquatch like, you know, convention for the weekend in a, a hotel room in Bremerton and I got to meet Bob Gimlin, which I never thought I would ever get to meet. Oh my God, that was the most coolest thing in the world. And then um, we also, uh, he was a psychologist and he had an experience with uh, the Sasquatch at the um Oregon caves when he took his family there and like you he stepped forward and said something he wanted to talk to a park ranger and tell him you know hey there's something out here you know I described it and because what what he did is he went he went off from the, his family group to use the bathroom and he said well he was standing there he looks over and he observed the Sasquatch watching his family from a distance behind a tree and um, he said he just freaked him out. He after he got done, he like ran back down there. He said, "Don't ask no questions. Just go back to the car. Go back." And they're like, "What?" And just go. And then nobody said that. They all went back. And then he told them when he got back to the car. <laughs> and uh, you know, he had his reputation to protect. He's a psychologist, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> and but he didn't care because that's what he saw. He saw it, and he was going to tell somebody. Because he was concerned about other people, you know, being out there around it. And um, uh, so, yeah, the, uh, some documentary people that had uh, some kind of show, they contacted him and stuff. And he ended up doing this story on actually on TV, on a documentary, which is really cool. But to hear his story, he really, he does, he gets emotional about it. He still talks about it. But um, I have seen a few last in... I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. That's okay. Yeah, no, it, it really is. Um, yeah, it can be an emotional experience. It, it's uh, very much so. I wanted to back up a little bit on the experience you had. So you and your friend heard this scream. Um, and did you guys see anything that kind of went along with that? Or uh, was it just, just the scream? Or it was just that scream, just that one yeah. time. And like I said, it didn't have, if it wouldn't have made no noise, we would have never known it was out there. We didn't have no clue that there was anything out there. And, you know, like I said, our, we have wildlife out there, but we don't have the kind of wildlife like I do out here in Lewis County. Well, and, and I, I would, you know, the other thing is, I, I want to back up a little bit. I shouldn't, <clears throat> I want to rephrase that. I shouldn't say just a scream, but it was a scream because honestly, so much of the uh, witness evidence out there is everybody thinks you got to see one of these things. But actually, we've talked about this in the past. You, there's all the evidence that you can collect um, 
the totality of it. You know, you 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 found some footprints. You guys took pictures of it in a different location, and you got this scream. So really, and <clears throat> it dovetails in with Rebecca that Will had on. Um, I think she did a four-part series with him. So this was probably very, very possibly uh, with the same group that that she had encountered. And and, then, and another thing, uh, the same year that I had my encounter, um, I found a book where uh, there was a story in there of Fort Lewis. Out in Fort Lewis, there was um, guys that were watching um, some, I don't know, some underground weapons or something, something out there. And um, they had, it was like, I guess, one big square where there was um, there was a, some sort of office up there where the some guys sat, but they had to they had to stand guard on each corner of the fence, which I think was pretty darn big. Well, I guess um, one of the guys down was like at the furthest um, away and um, close to the woods. Evidently, a Sasquatch came came out walking towards him, and he saw it and he stood there frozen. He didn't know what to do. I guess he actually dropped his gun and he ran. And he ran all the way back up to the office there, and he was freaking out. And I guess when you're in the military, you don't leave your gun behind anywhere. Uh, I was going to ask you if he was. If yeah, he was, you get in uh, trouble for that. Where's where that weapon that soldier? Counts, <laughs> yeah. Right. Do, you, do you know what they do if somebody loses their weapon? What? At least they used to. When I was when I was stationed at Fort Lewis, I actually had to t- partake in one of these. They would have everybody in the company get on their hands and knees shoulder to shoulder and crawl through an area to find a weapon. Holy cow. And I'm sure any veterans out there uh, who were in uh, the army years ago uh, were well acquainted with that. Wow. Yeah. They don't play around with that. Yeah. That's pretty serious stuff. I don't know what happened. Go ahead. Do you know of, well, I was kind of curious because you had your encounter and then it's the same area that um, Rebecca had one. I think the same time, you know, exact same time period. Yeah, it was very near to where it was. OK. Um, have you talked to anybody else, any of your friends or neighbors or anybody around there who said, hey, you know what? And then, you know, had a had a sighting or some kind of a strange sound like that? No. Nobody. And but but you remember all I said when I had my encounter and I talked to people about it, they made fun of me. So I didn't ask nobody no nothing about it. I didn't bring it up no more. But the one thing I forgot to tell you is before, like I told you, I lived there sixteen years and that happened to me when I was probably ten or eleven. Um, when I was really little, when I was very young, my mom um and dad, um, had a cow out in the field there. Um, and her name was Susie. And I thought they named me after the cow, but she said they didn't. And um, she, my mom said one night she went out to feed the cow. Sometimes my dad would, you know, hit the bar after work and not come home right away. And my mom wanted the cow fed. And, and so when you go out our back door, um, you see a big field and you see the railroad tracks. And the railroad tracks are like up on a hill. And they run all the way down alongside of our property until 
um, you can't see them no more because the woods they disappear and they had this this cattle this cattle thing too uh, because people years ago I don't know why but the military was letting uh, people local farmers let their cows graze out out in the um, reservation so when we would go we would when we were kids sleeping out we grew two big huge gardens and those cows would knock that fence down from the reservation and come and eat our eat in our garden. So we'd always have to chase the cows back out, back out to the reservation. So sometimes when we did go out there and you know, go out and adventure through the reservation, we did kind of smell foul things and we would find a dead cow. But there was a lot of times we didn't find a dead nothing. And we always expected to every time we heard, we smelt that because we expected that something to be dead. So, um, two years after my encounter, um, um, it was another, sun, I'm, oh, I'm like, I'm like 12 now. Um, and it's another sun, sunny summer out for school, school's out for the summer. And I'm, I'm in the kitchen, I'm making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, I think it's a weekend, and uh, on TV, TV was playing, and my niece, my niece was sitting in there watching TV. I was making her some sandwiches, and I heard uh, the scream on the TV, and the hair raised on the back of my neck. I was like, "Oh my God, there's that freaking sound!" And I went running in the front room, and I looked at the TV, and what it was was a documentary from uh, in Washington State, um, Leonard Nimoy was doing a documentary and it was just starting the show was just starting and the first thing they did is they played the scream of the Sasquatch and it sounded exactly what I heard exactly I was like oh my god that's a it was a Sasquatch and I kind of thought it might have could have been because of how loud it was when it screamed and I knew it had to be big and I heard they're pretty they can get pretty tall and um so I'm thinking that's what it was so when we went to Camp Sistus after, uh, I can't remember if it was before or after I heard about Leonard Moy, but that was intriguing because here we go with the Sasquatch thing again. And we're up in Camp Sistus. We're up now where I live now. We're up by where I live now, which is cool because we went back out there. My son, every year, my birthday's in August, he and his girlfriend always take me out for a week going um we go camping for a week every year in august so they asked me when one to go and i said well i heard there's sightings at the lewis river and i would like to go stay some time there if we could and I said, okay so um we left monday they came i was living in mossy rock they they live in seattle they came down we've i followed them had my car packed up had my dog Followed them and we went to uh, the Lewis River, which was quite a drive. I believe it, to me it was like about a 75 mile drive. It just seemed forever to get there. Um, but the uh, Lewis River um, is sort of up by Cougar. I don't know how familiar you are with Washington State, but if you were to follow the freeway and if you were to get to Cougar um, from the freeway, you'd almost be to Oregon State. Cougars like on the opposite side of Mount St. Helens, where it didn't blow up, where it's still beautiful and green. That's where Cougar is. So you can get to Cougar the, uh, through these um, forest roads 
through uh, the back way from Morton and Packwood. Um, they got all these roads. Um, if you know where you're going, you can get there. So um, we get up to, so this, this campsite, there's Lewis River is, has some falls, different falls. It's, I guess, a pretty long river. You can hike up to these falls, or they have parking lots where you can drive. Um, the third falls that he told, we're in the middle. We camped in the middle uh, campsite of the Lewis River. They call it the middle uh, Lewis River campsite. And then, um, and then four and a half miles from our campsite, there was a falls that we decided we were going to hike on, um, when we got to, after we got there. So, um, but anyway, there was a lot of people, um, at these campsites. It was still, uh, it was getting towards the end of August, but there's still a lot of people around and I said, oh boy, I'm never going to see a Sasquatch up here <laughs> with all these people. So I, the next day we decided to go on this hike, but we didn't decide until like, 10 30 11 o'clock and <laughs> it was okay it didn't matter we literally go we're gonna go so we started hiking it was a four and a half mile hike and it was a beautiful hike i mean the trails are all just the trails are so cool they're all clean they go over these little bridges and stuff that people go up there and and donate their time and and, and do to these trails is just fabulous but um we're we're going along and my dog's in front of my kids, um, my son and his girlfriend, and I'm following behind them. Well, I don't know how well you are with the YouTube um, Sasquatch people, but um, year about, I don't know, about eight years ago, I found Barbara Shoop. Barbara Shoop's on uh, YouTube. She goes out and um, she habituates with, the Sasquatch, and what I mean by habituate is she brings them food, she brings them gifts, and um, she goes out there, and she goes to the same areas, and she'll holler at them, she'll talk out loud to them, and, like, call them in, and, and, and she finds gifts that they leave her, and she leaves them gifts. And I think it's a really cool idea. I thought, well, you know something, I'm going to try this, you know, I'm just being goofy. So I just start screaming off the top of my head, and I'm going, Sasquatch, where are you? And I mean, I'm screaming as hard as I can. I'm going, it's my birthday. Come and see me. And then kids, they would laugh, you know. And a few minutes later, I'd do it again. Sasquatch! And I did it for like a mile. I think it was the last mile of the hike. And uh, when we got up to the falls, um, we walked through this parking lot, and um, it was empty. And by this time, we're looking at like 4 or 5 in the afternoon now. And that's time usually all the people camping or out there making their barbecued food. So we're, we stopped at the falls for a while and had uh, drank a bottle of water, and my son threw a pole in the water and we talked for a little bit and then we said well we better head back we got four and a half miles to go so we went <clears throat> when we headed back I was quiet I was exhausted from screaming all that way and walking on four and a half miles and, and so I was pretty quiet and so we go through this parking lot and it's empty still not even a car you didn't hear no cars going down on the road outside or nothing this is just extremely quiet out there just really quiet so 
when we go to the parking lot, um, the trail has switchbacks. And so I'm guessing maybe about six times, six or eight times switchbacks, you go down this cliff. And then you get to the bottom of this cliff, the trail proceeds to go straight on and then it, it runs along the lower part of the, the cliff instead of the upper part like we were on. And um, so we were going down all these switchbacks and going down and down and down. We all got down to the bottom and, and we started um, walking again. And all of a sudden I hear this crackling some I hear a tree crackling and it scared me. I started running because um, the trails and stuff up there is a national forest. So when they have bad windstorms up there, you see all these logs like dangling over cliffs and stuff like that all over the place. It's kind of, it's kind of quite creepy. <laughs> but um, when I heard the crackling noise of this tree, I'm thinking one of them things are rolling or something is coming down the trail. I don't know what I was thinking, but I ran between the kids and I turned around and I looked at them and I go, did you hear that? And then all of a sudden over our head comes this big, huge tree branch and it just goes flying over our head so far up in the air. And I could see that we have this stuff in the Washington state that grows on the trees. I don't know if it kills it or not, but it's like a, it's like a moss, and it, it hangs on the tree branches and stuff, and it's kind of weird looking. But that stuff was hanging on that tree branch. So I knew that was a tree branch that was was broken, broken off the tree, mind you. It wasn't picked up off the ground. It was broken off the tree, and it was flung. And it flung so far, it missed the whole cliff and hit the, hit the water. And I'm looking at the kids that... My son, he he didn't know what it was because he would have it back to me. But his girlfriend caught, she caught, uh, uh, after it went past her, back of her head, she caught the rest of the branch going over. So she knew it was a branch, too. I said, who threw that branch? And my, my son, I go, there's nobody out here. I mean, nobody. Who threw that branch? And and look how I mean they I just some um, told me there were if there was a human out there that heard me hollering for Sasquatch and wanted to stay back in the trail and hide and wait for us to go by and throw a tree branch at us to freak us out that was a possibility but the guy was not going to break it off of a tree and throw it he would have picked it up off the ground. Right? Am I wrong? No, that makes total sense. Yeah, that, that I part think is very so. interesting. Yeah. How high up was I'm, it? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how high the... No, I didn't. You know, to be honest with you, what I said was, okay, I'm talking six or eight switchbacks down. We're walking... We have three and a half miles to go. I, there was no way I was going back up to the top of that cliff to look to see where it was broken from. <laughs> I was tired. I should have, I but I didn't. And so I don't know how high it was broken off the tree, but I do know it was broken off the tree. And that's what that's what uh, freaks me out because. 
you know, uh, when we think about it psychologically, if somebody, like I said, wanted to freak us out, they wouldn't have broken it off the tree and thrown it. Not a human. No way. But it was a big branch. So it had to be pretty high in the air because it was pretty big branch. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so what did you guys, you just hiked out well, of there? Well, we just walked. We just kept continuing to hike in and nobody said a word. <laughs> we didn't talk the whole way back. I was just wrapping my mind about what through the branch. <laughs> I, I, you know, it was for one thing, hollering like that out there. There was no way in heck did I think for one minute there was gonna, a Sasquatch was going to appear, right? And so, you know, I was just mainly, because that's my character, I was mainly being goofy and, you know, I was saying, Sasquatch, you got a beautiful home. I love your house. You know, stuff like that. And the kid is like, are you, uh-oh, are you there? Yeah, we're here. Absolutely. Okay. My phone. Yeah, I'm not used to these cell phones. <laughs> My cell phone. Somebody's trying to call me, but I, I'm ignoring it. Anyway. So, I, I, you know, here I go. I I go to Lewis County or go to the Lewis River and I got in, I got an encounter with them. So that night that we had that experience, when we got back to our camp and we made dinner and we sat around and played guitar and had a few beers and um, crashed out, um, about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and all the dogs were barking in the um, campsite. And um, I thought, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And I, I didn't hear nothing, so I crashed back out. And, and so the next morning when the kids got up, they go, Mom, did you, did you hear the dogs barking last night? I go, yeah. And they go, well, she said, well, we were, I was, we were talking, and she said all of a sudden she heard a big, big whoop, just a big one, big screeching whoop. And that's what got the dogs barking. And that's all it did was just, one big scream out of the forest there and I go why didn't you wake me up she goes well, what are you going to do go look for it and I go maybe <laughs> you know who knows I don't, you know if I'm not alone I might yeah but yeah I thought was and I have I don't know if you've heard of Ron Moorhead in the Sierra Sounds California of course yeah mm-hmm. yeah well, I bought his book and his CD, and I played it, and she told me there was one of the noises she heard on there sounded exactly what she heard come out of the woods. So, I mean, that was cool. Yeah, I got to meet, I went to a, um, I really got excited when I found out there was have, they were having Sasquatch conventions in places, because um, here was my opportunity to you know, tell people, yeah, I, I had an encounter and, and, um, you know, uh, because there's so many different people out there that have, and there's so many people out there that haven't, 
that been out in the woods, that live out in the woods and think, you know, I've been out in those woods all my life and I ain't seen no Sasquatch. Well, you know, I think for some reason um, they're very smart. And I think you can't go find them. You're not going to go find them. You just got to go somewhere and you got to make a lot of noise and attract people. Attract them. Let them know you're there. You're actually bringing up a really good point because you're in a place where you ostensibly think, well, they're not around here because there's no indication of it. You yell and, you know, what happened? You know, you got a result. So I, I did, think and really, you, yeah. you're actually there a lot more than this is, Will and I have talked about this. I said, I tell Will, I'm going to go to where they're not, and but they were. So um, I think you're just underscoring that point. They really are out there, and I think they see us all far more often than we see them. Absolutely, and I think. I think there was one watching us for a long time when we went hiking that day. <laughs> I think it was probably out there before I even started hollering for it. And, you know, they're so, they they can stand behind something and they're gone. You can't see them. They don't move. You know, I can't stand it when people put all these pictures on their Facebook and I got the circle around this tree and they're like, you know, I can kind of see a face there, you know, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> those those kind of pictures, but boy, I'll tell you, I've seen some 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 awesome pictures of people capturing. I mean, there's just no way that you can say that is not a Sasquatch. Have you ever heard of Thinker Thunker? I have. Yeah, I like Thinker Thunker. Yeah, he's. I he's do. Really I love Thinker Thunker. I found him a long time ago, and he. When he did Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson's um, Patty film, and they lined him up with uh, the guy that said he wore the costume. Did you see that one where he drove, drove, he took the green line and went across Patty's elbows to this guy's elbows, and there was no way, they didn't even match. So there's no way it could have been somebody in the costume because right. our, all, all of our body uh, structure is totally different from there. It, it is. And we had yeah. we had a guy on a couple of years ago, Will, uh, Bill Munns, who is a Hollywood uh-huh. right. costume expert. And he, he basically came to the exact same conclusion that there is the technology simply did not exist. I don't think it exists today to create something as good as Patty. So it right. was, yeah, it's it's very legit. That is not somebody in a suit. There are no suits out there. No, that no. Can run around. I don't care what you do. Well, Listen, Patty had a hernia suit, or something, didn't she? Had a hernia well, or something? Yeah, there was a on her right upper calf. There was a herniated section that would actually move up yeah. and down. And, right. And who would have thought to do that? You know, it was it. It was just. One of many things that just pointed out that, you know, it's it's a, it's a legitimate video. Sue, I, I got to say, this is uh, really a treat talking to you. And oh, it's great talking to you guys, too. I've, yes, it was. I, um, it, I It's always exciting to talk about the Sasquatch because it was, 
it was really an experience and and to talk about talking to people that you know believe in them i mean you know it's just i i feel sorry for the people that don't and haven't had an encounter but i think the sasquatch can pick up your scent i think they can feel your energy and they know whether you're good or bad or not for some well, reason. that's that's probably why you don't see them. They pick up on my bad energy, and they're out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you don't go out there with bad energy. You know, the, woods, the woods kind of give you peace and, and serenity, you know? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, listen, we're... We're just about out of time. So, Sue, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, everyone, stay tuned or stand by. We're going to put on the uh, the next interview here shortly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Jerry's joining us today. How are you doing, Jerry? Doing pretty good. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. <laughs> going back to old radio uh, vernacular there. But if you like the show, let us know. Click the like and subscribe button if you haven't subscribed already. And if you want to support us, you can do so. We've got a link in the description for Patreon. Jerry, you and I talked, I believe it was yesterday, and it's coming on the heels of a show that we just recently did with uh, some people. Uh, uh, well, one of our guests, she was in uh, Yakima. Your encounter was in eastern Washington. Is that correct? Yes, in Spokane. Spokane, okay. Tell us a little bit, actually tell us all about it, and stay on the line when we get off the show because we want to get the precise uh, location. But uh, start off with, uh, you know, the date and time and how you got there and what was going on. Well, it's been uh, it's been quite a while, uh, so I'm not sure if I can remember the exact, date and time uh i was living in spokane around 2008-2009 i was working for a temporary agency doing working temp jobs i just got off of uh off of one of one of my jobs and uh was heading home uh we lived out in the middle of the country i was taking a back road home and uh i was just driving along window down smoking listening to music and uh i all of a sudden i i smelled this really bad smell it was smelled like a a wet dog smell times a hundred it was it was really strong and i thought that was weird i was driving along i come around the corner and all of a sudden, there he was, Bigfoot just standing there on the side of the road. I came to a stop about six feet from him. He looked at me and didn't didn't even act like I was anything. Just looked at me and then took took two steps and he was across the road and gone. And... Uh, course my adrenaline was pumping uh i'd always believed in bigfoot but never act 
in person until until that night. Um, and, Jerry, you uh, said you were very close to this thing when you saw it. Did you yes. pick up on any kind of facial expressions or features? You know, did you get a mm -hmm. sense of what this thing was? It surprised or angry or what? You know, what did you pick up on any of that kind of stuff? No, actually, when when he looked at me, um, there there was really there was no expression on his face. It just there there was no anger, no no nothing. It just looked like like a a, a normal person expression. You know, just how if you just looked at you know your just normal nor, normal look at somebody. Um. There was no, there was no anger, no, no nothing. Just looked at me, and it's like it didn't have a care in the world. Did you get a chance to look at its eyes at all? Uh, really dark. They were uh, a little inset and uh, and black and black as could be. Okay, and uh, what color was the creature itself? Black stood about between eight and a half and nine feet tall. Giant hands, long arms, long legs, fur covered in fur, head to toe, and and just. I don't know, you know, I don't know what he was, I don't know what he was doing when I came around the corner. I don't know if he was just, you know, going to cross the street, you know, to walk across the road. And I just happened to come around the corner and, you know, catch him. Uh, but uh, I, it was, it was really, it was really exciting, you know, finally, believing in him for so long and then finally actually seeing him in person no more than six feet away from my car. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, what did his face, was it covered in hair or was it uh, without hair? What? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, basically, uh, you, you've seen a... a ape or a gorilla how they've got hair all over except around their their mouth and and whatnot that that's what it, there was there was really no no fur around the mouth but the entire head the entire head was was covered in fur okay and did you get a look at the mouth at all um you know like was it a very large mouth you know, larger than you would expect, or uh, or did you have a time to really notice that? I didn't really have a time to notice that. the The whole experience happened in about thirty seconds. I came around the corner, I stopped. He looked at me, and within thirty seconds, it it was over. And you said he crossed the road in what two steps or? Yeah, he was stand he was standing on the on the the shoulder of the road and literally he took one step, he was to 
the center line. He took a second step, and he was across the road. Jerry, how much did you know about the topic before this happened? Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, ever, you know, when I was younger, um, I'd heard about, you know, Bigfoot and, you know, there being Bigfoot sightings and whatnot. And, you know, I looked into it, you know, I looked, looked into it, researched a little bit to see, you know, what Bigfoot was, but besides that i really did i really didn't know much you've seen the patterson film right seen what the patterson film no actually i have not oh i was curious to if you would had had a comparison of what the creature in the film looks like compared to what you saw but uh yeah i would encourage you to take a look at that i'm definitely going to now uh yeah, I ne- never heard of the Patterson film, so I'm definitely uh, will get with my wife tonight when I get home and uh, and definitely check that out and see how it compares to uh, to my experience. But that wasn't the only time that that I saw him. I actually saw Bigfoot a week later. Really? What were you doing when yes. that happened? Same thing. I was on my I was on my way I was on my way home from work. Uh, another another night shift. Got off work. Same road. Same back road. Um, I'd say probably about half a mile down the road from where I saw him the first time. Driving down the road. Same thing. Listening to music. Window down. Smoking a cigarette. And I and I smelled I smelled it again. And this time I knew, once I smelled it, I knew what I was smelling. And I, I knew there was some, you know, I knew he was around. Did you think it was the same was creature? I, 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 did, I didn't know until I, until I came around the corner. And this time when I came around the corner, he was actually standing in the middle of my lane. Oh, wow. And... I don't. I don't know if it was the same one that I saw the week prior. I'm still, you know, it was still black. Say, you know, eight and a half, nine feet tall. Mm-hmm. You know, er, everything, you know, looked the same. But I, I don't know. I have no clue if it was the actual one that I saw the week prior. How far? The, how far away were you from it when you first saw it? Uh, the first time. In my car, I was about six feet away. This second time. The second time, second time, I was I was about the same. I was about I was about six feet away, but because literally I came around the corner, and as I came around the corner, there he was, and I hit and I hit the brakes and and slid and slid to a stop, and I ended up about six feet from him. And the weird thing was when I came around the corner and i hit the brakes and and slid it didn't it didn't phase him he didn't react he didn't react whatsoever was there he was looking, no reaction was he looking oh at yeah you? He, oh yeah he he was he was already facing my direction when i came around the corner and so so again you know that time you know that time come around the corner he's 
right there. No reaction when I slid to a stop. Adrenaline's pumping. But again, it looked like he did not have a care in the world. So how long did this go on, Blanket him just standing there looking at you? Uh, the, se- the second time, he stood, he stood there for about, I'd say, a minute and a half this time. That's a just long time. He stood there in the middle of the road. Yes. And my adrenaline was pumping. You know, I was, and I've, I had so many scenarios going through my head wondering, you know, what, what's, you know, what's going to happen? Is, you know, am I in danger? You know, is he like sizing me up or what? But he literally just stood there staring at me. And then about a minute and a half later, he turns and takes a step and he's off the road and back into the woods. Jerry, both of these happened at nighttime. Is that right? Yes. Do you remember about what time at night it was? Uh, it was between it was between ten and midnight, so somewhere between ten o'clock and midnight. Because I I I worked the night shift and I would get off I'd get off somewhere around nine o'clock. And it was, and it was about, it was about an hour drive if I was to just drive, you know, drive straight home. So somewhere between 10 and midnight was when, uh, was when the encounters happened. What, um, what's the terrain like there? Is it, is it like the Eastern Washington where it's just sagebrush or what were you in a forested area? Uh, what was that like? Uh, uh, heavy, you know, heavy, heavy, thick, thick forest. Um, lot, a lot of uh, big old canopy, you know, over the trees. Um, if you're, you know, if you pull over on the side of the road and you look over and in, it's so it's so thick in there. You can't, you know, you can only see maybe three or four feet in. Okay. All right. So very interesting. Just out of curiosity, what kind of car are you driving when this happened? Uh, at that, at that time I was, uh, I was driving, uh, I was driving a Chevy Impala. Um, it was, it was my, my girlfriend's, uh, parents car that I was driving. Cause my, my truck was was in the shop, so I was driving their Chevy Impala. Okay. Well, listen, this was uh, this is pretty interesting, and two in one week, it's got to make you wonder, right? It it does it does. Uh, you know, I thought about it for a long time. And, you know, I had many thoughts going through my head, you know, wondering, you know, because most people, you know, that report sightings of Bigfoot, they've only experienced that one time in their life. 
what are the odds of me experiencing it twice within a week? So it, it you know, made me think, what, was he seeking me out? Or was it just a coincidence that I happened to stumble across him twice in a week? Typically, they'll stay in an area for about 14 days or so. So it could be that's... Okay. It was, you know, hunting and, you know, feeding, and, and you just happened to be coming through there a couple times when that creature was there. Okay, see, see, I didn't... That, that's one. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they typically stay in an area for fourteen days. So, yeah, that's so that, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they they'll stay in an area about that period of time. Generally, there are exceptions, of course, but um, then they usually move on to another feeding area. Well, Jerry, I want to thank you. Uh, I know that right now you're driving a big rig truck. <laughs> You're on I five, yes, sir. And uh, you've you you're kind enough to take the time to, um, you know, do an interview with us and and uh, tell us your your encounter. So listen, I'm going to let you uh, get back to driving, and we appreciate it, and um, we'll stay in touch. It's no it's no problem. I'm I'm really glad uh, to uh, get it out there you know my experience to uh you guys and to everybody else you know that that listens um you know before before yesterday uh i've only told you know a handful of people about my about about the experience so jerry we really appreciate it really good to to get it out there so it does it's a real relief to get it off your shoulders well, listen, we want to thank you. Appreciate it. Keep in touch I'm with us. I'm thankful for Hey, no problem. Oh, I will. I've got uh, I've got got your number, so I will definitely keep in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Have a thank good night. Too. All right, buddy. I, I will. You too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. This is Melody. Melody is from Washington and you and I spoke just a moment ago, you had an interesting encounter. And I, I like this one because this happened when you're just a little kid camping with your folks and I'm going to hand the mic to you, but start from the beginning, kind of give us the, the background leading up to it and what you saw. Well, it was back in the seventies, probably about 73. We were, out camping for the summer while my dad and mom looked for work, hide that gas embargo. And when we camped, we did not use a tent or a trailer. We would put our sleeping bag, tarp down, sleeping bag on top of it, and tarp over the top of it. And I woke up very early in the morning, looked across the creek. We were at Bumping Creek, just off of Highway 410 in Washington. And there was a creature across the the creek and I just kind of sat up there watching it. He was watching us also. But he wasn't menacing. And you could tell it wasn't a human. Arms were too long, hairy, 
And at the time, I had no clue what I was looking at. And I knew it wasn't a bear. I've been in this state long enough to know that. And um, I think I was 20, 30 years old before I even heard what a Sasquatch was. And my sister and I saw pictures of it. And it was like, that's what we saw. Well, she had seen one in the Olympic, I believe it was the Olympic Mountains um that same year yeah you'd mentioned that that she saw one and you've seen them yes and i mean it, and it was it wasn't a menacing creature it was i think just as curious about us as we were about him or i was i nobody else was up in camp <laughs> it was quite early in the morning and i went into the woods went to the back tell us a little back, bit about what did you see It was okay. a so. It, it was an uh, the best way to describe it is an ape-like creature. It's very hairy, very hairy. Um, the face was not human. Uh, very long arms. Uh, I could tell big hands, but I couldn't see the feet. Um, it, it was across the creek, so it was probably a good hundred feet from where I was at it was very early in the morning. I think we might've been breaking dawn at the time. So, you know, and like I said, I, I didn't know at the time what I was looking at. I bet. Did you get a chance to, did you notice what color the hair was? It was dark and looked like dark brown. I mean, I can still, I am 58 years old and I can picture this in my mind as if he's standing there in front of me. And if people don't believe in Sasquatch, and, they're not. <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. So you're talking to a channel that actually we do believe in it. <laughs> um, did you get a look at his uh, eyes, you know, the color of the eyes or anything like that? Uh, all I could tell is dark eyes. Like I said, he would, it was really early in the morning. Um, like I said, probably, probably about breaking dawn. I'm an early riser when I'm out camping. And um, so, it, I mean, there was no, it, it wasn't the red uh, eyes. They, a lot of people will say they saw Then his eyes were dark and I didn't feel menace. I wasn't afraid. You know, it's just, it's just a beautiful creature. Well, yeah, and it, it doesn't sound like it was acting uh, very malevolent. Um, no. How long? How long do you think the hair was? Oh, Lord, my perception from when I'm younger to when I, until now is so. Uh, I would have to say. Six to twelve inches. I mean, it was it was very long hair. I mean, it, and it was just it covered from top to bottom, except the face, the face, and around the hands that I could see. The hands were human-like. And no, could you? Did you have any indication of what it was doing? 
just prior to you guys having this kind of, you know, you you made eye contact and saw each other. What uh, what was it up to? I couldn't tell you what it was up to because I, you know, I sat up in bed and uh, or sat up in my uh, sleeping bag, and that's when I spotted it. So I don't know if I maybe startled it and it was just, you know, walking through, or he spotted us and was just curious. Okay, so you guys were camping, and you sat up in your sleeping bag. Were you in a tent, or were you guys just out in the open? Out in the open. Okay. Cowboy camping. Yep. <laughs> no, that's I've done that. That's a good way to camp. Um, so you just set up, and there, you know, there it is. It's it's uh, you guys right, right across the creek. You know, and I had good eyesight back then. <laughs> and I've right. never had another encounter, but I would love to. I'm, they fascinate me. Well, they're interesting. They're very intriguing. What, um, and you didn't see it walk away? How, what happened? Give us a little bit of a rundown on I, how, how I went ahead and, um, I went ahead and finished getting up and I went further in to the woods where we had our little bathroom set up and I went to the bathroom and I came back and he was gone when I came back. Okay. So while you're getting up and going to the bathroom, he's probably still there. And then at some point just poof disappeared. He was gone. Yeah. Just said, you know what? No, no harm over there. We're going to leave him alone. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's it. And this is obviously if you're out sleeping in the open, this is a nice warm summer, summer afternoon or summer, summer um, night if you're sleeping. Yeah, outside. I'm, I'm thinking it was around August. That was about okay. the time we were camping in that area. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you, Melody. This is an interesting encounter from a little kid. And um, uh, you mentioned your sister a year, year older than you and at a, uh, it sounds like about a year apart. <laughs> she also had an encounter, but in a totally different location. She was up in the Olympics. Yeah, totally so different location. Hoping. Yeah, we're hoping to. Yeah, will, she, well. she's, yeah. But, yeah, it was. Um, I still talk about it to this day. People think I'm not, you know, you believe well, in squat? Yes, on, you're, I do. You're, you're in the Pacific Northwest, so you got to have some people that are that, that believe you. Well, listen, Melody, mm-hmm. I want to thank you. This is an interesting encounter, and we will be in touch. Uh, you're going to get a hold of it? Yeah, I'm going to get a hold of sister. And in the meantime, okay, excellent. Well, listen, I want to wish you a very good evening, and uh, hopefully we'll talk real soon. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. All right, thanks, Melody. Have a good night. Bye-bye. In Bigfoot history, Warm Springs Reservation, Oregon, fall 1967. Clyde Staley, Portland, 
told John Furman that a road contractor had told him giant human-like tracks had been seen near Trout Lake and photographed by a deputy from the sheriff's office on the reservation. John called at the deputy's home and was told by his wife that she had heard about the tracks and also of a trailer being violently shoved. However, the sheriff did not answer John's letter. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Forrest, for, uh, before we get started, Forrest, you've had some recent activity. Would you like to update us? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I can, to the best of my ability, because I it didn't actually happen happen to me. It was, uh, uh, I'm assuming you're referring to uh, Sherry's incident. Oh, um, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I was actually in the house when it all transpired, but... Uh, She's, uh, um, she was a little rattled by it, to say the least. Um, she was out, uh, watering the horses. I had, I had stayed in, uh, I'd had a kind of a bad night with my back and everything. So I didn't go out there and, uh, she was out there fixing a water hose underneath, uh, a tree next to the cabin. And, um, as it was related to me, she heard three, and <laughs> exactly the way she described it was growly, grunty whoops uh, in a row. And then there was like uh, three knocking sounds in a row. And she thought at first, uh, she and her daughter, Sam, communicate through walkie-talkies because uh, that way they don't have to walk back and forth. Uh, across the property if one's doing one thing on one side then she doesn't have to walk around so they communicate by walkie-talkies and she thought at first that maybe she had she had the walkie in her pocket she thought well maybe it switched to another channel and somebody she picked up somebody on her uh, on her walkie and she pulled it out of her pocket and she checked it and she was like uh no uh and that's when it kind of i think it kind of hit her because um, she heard it again uh, while she's standing there and the three grunty growly whoops and that's when she told Sam she says get over to the truck and get our pistols um, now both she and Sam have licenses to carry of course you don't even have to have a, a license to open carry in the state of Texas anymore um, we're uh, one of the few states that has uh, the right to open carry at any point in time, but she, uh, they do have a license to carry. So uh, both Sam went and got her um, pistol and they strapped them on. And uh, then that's when she heard the, the three knocks again. So anyway, um, she was a little rattled to say the least. And, Tom knows she was rattled because I actually called him because I was a little rattled after she related it to me and I could hear the fear in her voice and she just couldn't determine exactly where it was coming from, whether it was in the crawl space underneath the old house or I, she, she told me later when I talked to her on the phone and we had all kind of calmed down 
from the episode that she kind of thought it was up in the trees. Well, now, while she's real, here's where the high strangeness comes in. While she's relating this to me, I, of course, I'm sitting in the house and, um, because we've had unbearably high temperatures up in the hundred degrees here and, uh, they didn't really want me to come out there in that heat. So, um, I'm sitting here and of course, with the way I have my chairs situated, I can look straight out the window here and I can see all my horses over here in this pasture. They were actually over there eating on their round bales. And the next thing I look up, they're all, while she's, she's now just relating this to me, they're all running to the other side of the pasture away from me because away from uh, um, the direction where the sound was coming from. Now, uh, and then what was so strange is I have a filly that is uh, snow white and she, she's a yearling and she was standing up here at the water tank getting a drink. And, uh, the next thing I see her, she rears up and all I can see is her in the, the window rearing up. And then she actually came down in the water tank and, uh, just made a gosh awful noise out there trying to get her extricate herself from the water tank and then she ran to the west and it took them me going out there because i called tom and i'm like oh gosh this is really disturbing because now this is during the middle of the day and i've never had this happen before and i'm taking the phone out there to her so she if because I had told Tom and he wanted to talk to her. So uh, I let her relate the incident verbatim to him. And so I just thought that it was really strange that the horses reacted just, I mean, shortly after that in such a strange fashion. And they actually came up, back up to their round bells but they weren't eating. They were just all standing out there looking around like they were very, very apprehensive of uh, something, something bothering them. So anyway, it was just a very, very strange, peculiar day. And I'm not going to, I have to tell you, Sherry and Sam got through with everything as fast as they could and they went home and they were bothered by it because she and I have talked since. So, uh, her husband is actually coming out with Sam today. They're feeding today, and uh, Travis is coming with Sam today. Wow. Yeah. Forrest, didn't you say that you, uh, Sherry, or you, no, I think you did. You found some some bones uh, out yeah. there oh, from your missing I'm cats. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I, that, that upset me greatly. Uh, when I walked out there with the telephone, because I didn't want Tom to have to hang on the phone while I was walking out there, because it does take me a little while. And I was standing in the shade of the tree, and she was actually out back, and I was kind of yelling at her, "Uh, Sherry, 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 get up here. I need to talk to you. Tom wants to talk to you. And she's like coming from way at the back. She'd been one of the horses. And I looked down on the – I just happened to look down on the ground, and I thought, what is this? And I started picking up these bones. And they were fresh bones. And, well, you know, Tom and me are cat lovers. 
and I have had for four weeks, I may get emotional about this here. Um, I've had one guy, one of my, my cats, missing. He comes in the house every night, and he, he just, he went out one time during the day, and he didn't ever come back. And I haven't seen Dale since. And uh, here, and these bones belong to a pretty big cat, and he was a, he was a big cat. And the, the bones, they were leg bones. And they'd actually been broke open. They weren't just crushed or anything. They were broke open. These They were intact. And anyway, I picked them up, the ones that I, I could find. I, I looked around. That was all I saw was just leg bones laying there. And anyway, that upset me. That upset me. Well, with all the other activity you've had going on there, it, it seems to fit in, you know, with the mode of behaviors. Well, yeah, and you know what? I've reached a point now, I'm getting tired of it. <laughs> uh, I can I can put up with uh, a certain amount of this stuff, but, you know, um, I'm starting to get a little aggravated about the whole situation. Yeah, I mean, hits, how do you sit down and reason with a Bigfoot? <laughs> yeah, when it hits ho close to home like that, when your pets start being taken, that's that's kind of beyond the line of acceptability. Well, yeah, and you know, I can't I can't say with a certainty that that's what happened, but the fact that they were broke open mm -hmm. and then obviously cleaned out, you know, that's not something that uh, uh, a coyote and and it is. That would be have to be the only thing that would take him down, a coyote or a feral dog. Right, um, and they would chew up the yeah, bones. Yeah, they would just chew up the bones, you know, crunch them up, and that's not what the situation was here. So <clears throat> that that was rather distressing anyway. Wow. Well, Tom, do we have a lot of questions today? We do. We have a lot of very excellent questions. Um and I just want to thank everybody for sending these in. Keep them coming. These are excellent questions, and they keep the topic alive. So, um, and I also want to say that, you know, the questions that, that you may have in the back of your mind, but you don't know if you want to ask it or not, is now send them in. And, um, you know, and we, we protect everybody's identity. So we, you know, we keep your identity secure. Um, so one of the questions is, it has to do with, <clears throat> excuse me, this is from a guy named Bill, and he wants to know about the hair. Is it hair or fur on a Bigfoot? And what about the stories he's heard that some of the creatures have hair that is, it seems to be translucent or, you know, when people see it, uh, with the sun shining on it, it seems to have a kind of a, almost like a, a, a glow to it. And I, I really don't know where to go with this, but we have had a couple of guests on that have described precisely that. So, um, Forrest, I'm going to start with you, then I'll go to Will. What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, all primates have hair. Um, the coarseness, of course, uh, varies just like coarseness varies in in human hair. 
Um, I don't know anything about translucent qualities. Uh, I, I plead total ignorance on that, I, and I don't uh, know of any primates, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not aware of every type, hair type on every primate, and uh, I'm not that knowledgeable uh, on primate hair types, but uh, I don't know of any primates that uh, have translucent hair. So, I mean, there, your guess is as good as mine. Well, I would, I would say on the first part, you know, when they asked about fur or hair, I, I try to keep up on articles, you know, current things going on. And, and I know the current train of thought is that there isn't any difference between hair and fur. It's all basically the same thing, just kind of different variations. Um, as far as translucent, I mean, to me, that would indicate that it's clear. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any you know, hair that's clear like that with that kind of a quality. It would it would all have pigmentation and, and be normal hair like any other creature. Milo, what do you think? Well Oh wow. I'm I am not an expert at none of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you know, I I would assume it'd be more like hair. Right, right. At at a guess. But that's just a guess now. Well, I was going to well, say something, go if ahead, I Forrest. can. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt there, but when you, you there are there are certain hair colors in horses that have uh, your champagnes and what they call pearls. Uh, we've done, they've done so much research into the coloration on horses, and there are actually horse colors that possess a translucent quality, which gives them an opalescent or champagne uh, value to their their hair coats i've never heard anything like that in bigfoot but then i mean obviously i'm not aware of every uh, sighting that's been you know reported so but uh, it does strangely enough occur in uh horses coats well i guess you know people use a lot of terminology and i think it it goes around <clears throat> excuse me there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around these days without people really understanding what that term means. Now, translucent, the definition is of a substance allowing light, but not detailed shapes to pass through it. Semi-transparent. Um, I, I just don't recall, you know, in, in the coursework I, I took with anthropology when they talked about different hair types, you know, and the humans, of course anything being translucent I, I would think that the pigmentation would kind of rule that out even blonde hair well even people that uh, um, are albinos I mean uh, their their hair actually has a um, the ones that I have seen um, have a strangely uh, yellow low yellowish appearance mm -hmm. to their hair color right so so there's still I don't pigmentation. Think there's still pigmentation there, uh, but uh, I've never seen anything with just a total absence of color in the hair. And I think some people are trying to utilize that terminology to uh, explain, you know, quote unquote, cloaking. And and I just don't, I just don't buy into that. Well, I don't know of any flesh and blood creature that has the ability to to cloak. No. 
unless they're wearing a cloaking device. And I've seen some of those things that they, they use in the military. <laughs> there have been too many Star Trek people out there applying their their uh, TV knowledge to Bigfoot, I think. Okay, Tom, next question. I'm disappointed. I really wanted a cloaking Bigfoot. <laughs> I know we'll, I catch, know, okay. we'll catch some flack over that, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so Kevin has a really good question. Actually, you know, honestly, this is one that I've had uh, myself. So thank you, Kevin. This is, uh, he wants to know, he says he's listened to many pod- podcasts and he hears countless stories of the creatures throwing rocks uh, and objects at people. He says, I've never heard anyone mention them hunting this way. Uh, I don't, he says, I don't believe the only time they would throw rocks would be at people, especially how accurate they seem to be. So is there any evidence or do you believe that Sasquatch could hunt by throwing rocks? I I know. I, I mean, other, you know, other primates, they hunt chimps, for example, and as far as I know, they don't throw, throw rocks during that process, although they do throw objects, right, uh, Forrest? Oh, yeah, they throw rocks and, and chunks of wood, but I've never heard of them hunting in that fashion. But that's, that's a different purpose. That's more of a, you know, get out of here sort of a thing. Oh, yeah, when they're having a, a, a fit, they will, they will do that. They go through their uh, picking up large pieces of wood and uh, knocking it against other trees and stuff as they run and just having a thoroughly good time throwing a fit and they will throw rocks and all that sort of stuff right so if a sasquatch is throwing rocks at you it's a pretty good indication you need to leave yeah Yeah, especially the ones that are size of a basketball yeah you don't want to stick around for those Um, here's a really good question. This is from a gentleman named Scott. Scott wants to know, well, we talked about, I think it was on last week's show, you know, very large groups of Sasquatch. And there was a situation in California where a bunch of groups had banded together and there was probably about 40 of them. Yeah, it was, I think it was nine, and, nine groups that banded together temporarily. Yeah. Which is nine too many. Right. Um, <laughs> so, what this guy wants to know is, and I've heard about this as well. Uh, actually, I think Lee talked about it at one point, that there was a Willow Creek. I don't know if it was Willow Creek, but this guy says Willow Creek, there was a Bigfoot massacre. Uh, oh, oh, wait a second. No, okay, the this Creek is going a different nonsense. direction. All right. Did that happen before or after the Giblin it film? It didn't happen at all. That's just, at it's all. stupid. You know, they come up with that theory. It's a stupid theory. It's based on nothing. Pure speculation. So we're not putting the and, guy down. For- yeah, it's pure speculation and fantasies by the people who come up with that. Yeah, not the gentleman yeah. who asked the question. Yeah, exactly. We're not putting him down. But um, again, this is the Bigfoot topic, and it's wide open to all sorts of stuff like this. It is. But in answer to the question, uh, there was no massacre there. No, and I totally agree with you. And, and, uh, there are some YouTubers out there that have uh, ac- absolutely gone crazy and run with uh, stupid analyzations of the film footage. And I, I've looked at it over and over what they put out there. And I'm like going, how in the hell, and excuse me for using that <laughs> word, but apropos, do they even get there? 
with that because, you know, uh, one was saying that there was blood on the ground and I'm sitting here looking at it and it looked like a leaf. And I mean, I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) See, they forget, Uh, they forget that was October 20th. And one of the things that Patterson spent most of the film that he brought with him on taking film footage of the surrounding area, the trees in particular, because the changes in color, uh, very spectacular, you know, reds and different colors that time of year in that area. And, and that's exactly what's on the ground. It's one of these leaves that have turned color. Well, I and they, thought it they've was... actually, I'm sorry, they've actually oh, go, questioned go Bob Gimlin about that. And uh, he, has, he has emphatically denied that anything like that ever transpired. So, you know, I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, you think about the logic of it. If, if they had, how much, how much of a larger story would that be? If they had actually massacred a bunch of Sasquatch, that would be way bigger. And, you know, if you're out trying to get the, the news out, that would be the way to do it. Well, their contention. That, and these, you'd have evidence. These people concocted this story. Their contention is it was the government that did it. Uh, but they forget details like, and even to this day, access into that area is very limited. You can only get in there from one of two directions. And at that time, there were... Uh, the road crews and loggers and oftentimes they would stay through the weekends you know at the site because it was such a long journey from home and back so there were people up there who saw patterson and gimlin the whole three weeks they were there didn't see anybody else up there so if you had a large group of people coming in there or anybody different they would have said something but they didn't see anybody except patterson and gimlin yeah and if it did happen which it didn't it would have been a one-off situation, really. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't have a. What'd be the motivation for slaughtering a bunch of Bigfoot, and would that motivation go away? You know, it, it just makes the logic is just completely. It's, um, there it's total nonsense. I think there should be a logic one-on-one course required for people to comment. I, I'll tell on you what. This. There's a there's a really good Facebook page, group page. It's called Bigfoot Hoaxers 2.0 by Darren Lee and and I high, highly recommend people going onto that site and taking a look at what they put up there. And, and they do their homework pretty well on a lot of these people and these uh, types of subjects. Kind of like a mythbusters for Bigfoot, huh? Yeah, yeah, they they do a really good job with it. Cool. Well, uh, <clears throat> if I if I can interject something here too is uh, you know I I like to try to keep up with a lot of these people and and the thing that I find and it really it agitates me greatly is that they they start with these theories and they start with these ideas and then the unfortunate thing is that they just keep on and on and on with them and 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 some of the stuff that I see out there that they're putting out there is pseudoia and oh here don't you see the bigfoot well no I don't see the bigfoot but you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's strictly pareidolia to me, and if you say anything to them uh, in the comments, they just absolutely lose their tiny little minds. And uh, oh, it's you, true. But I mean, they have they have developed such a loyal following that then you, the next thing you know, I've got these uh, idiots, and I'm sorry, that's what I'm going to use the term. Uh, they're contacting me and attacking me like uh, you know that that I'm the the you know, idiot of the, the day. So, um, 
you know, you just kind of get to the point that, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. Let them believe what they want to believe. And there, I mean, I can't believe the thousands of people that actually follow this stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I'll give you uh. I'll give you an example of one. There was <laughs> a, um, and, and it's circular. All these things are circular. So what, I, what I mean by that is uh, something will be put out, whether it's pictures or what have you, and it'll be explained. Like uh, the example I'm giving is there was a piece of artwork of a um it was a, a, a like a head carved or, or i can't remember how the, what the artwork what the medium was they made this and it was put up like it was looking through a window at night and it was to promote i'm trying to remember what it was trying they were trying to promote the artwork so that's how they set it up to make it look like it was a real situation and and the people who created the art actually they come out and were very open and honest about what it was well this picture or two they keep making the circuit. Uh, people say, what do you think of this? And you get all these people who think it's real when it was, in fact, a piece of art. And it was said so very blatantly by the creators of the artwork. But it keeps making the rounds periodically. And all these people jump on the bandwagon and want to believe it. And if you tell them it was a piece of art, they give you a bunch of grief about it. Yeah, circular reasoning. They can't. Well, you and will this we've talked about this why you can get two people two groups of people or two very large groups of people people or two organizations looking at the exact same evidence truth and arriving at opposite conclusions there's just no way around it I, i think what happens if people look at something it's interesting to them so they say oh i think that's real so that equates to being real right right well, they think their opinion matters. That's, and that goes yeah. back to the old Rene de Hinden quote where he says, everybody has a right to their own, opi- own opinion, but nobody has a right to... Um, oh, I can't remember how it all goes, but he, he basically says... Yeah, that, without the facts. Yeah, without the facts, your opinion means nothing. Okay, next question. All right. <laughs> so, now this is kind of sort of along the same lines, but not not the ridiculous stuff okay so richard wants to know have we ever talked to a witness or heard of a story of someone shooting and killing a sasquatch and then two the reverse of that has anybody been found dead in a strange way that the attribution has been attributed to a sasquatch killing that person i would say and i don't think we've had anybody on the show with either one of those well we can say yes but i I don't know if we can talk about it that's kind of what i was because well because (laughs) of dalton's situation and i I, did we did we have him on the show when he talked about that no okay so we we can't really talk about that but the answer is the answer is yes to both questions and i'm not interjecting anything (laughs) Um, here's, well, we can say that you have contacts in one of the tribes in Montana, and they're just very blunt. Absolutely, it uh, they do kill people. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been a lot of accounts where, you know, these things have been discussed. Some old reports, in fact. There was one, I want to say it was from the late 1800s, of some miners. You remember that story time when they were... They talked, there was a group of people who talked to the miners, and I think it was three miners, yeah. 
And then the following day, they found all three miners had been killed. Yeah, they'd been dismembered. Yeah, they'd been dismembered. So, I guess, yeah, so going back, I would say uh, probably yes to both of those questions because that the, the friends you've talked to in Montana, they hunted down the one that killed one of their tribal members and they returned the favor. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have a long-standing history with the Aboriginal uh, tribes of North America and Canada and Alaska that uh, state that uh, they have taken members of their tribes and killed them. And uh, so, I mean, I always say, you know, listen to <laughs> the Aboriginals know what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, and they have a long-standing history of this. They didn't just, you know... Myths always have a foundation, in fact. So uh, somewhere along the line, uh, the facts are there, and you need to you need to listen to them. Yeah, there were <clears throat> there's you know the current and f- current folks in Alaska that I chat with. Uh, we had Fred on the show. He's one of the folks up there, and um, our you know late friend Win from the Flathead Reservation. Both said these things are man eaters. That's what their people say. Then there's the story, um, it was published in Sports of Field Magazine, I, I think it was the early 60s, but they, uh, it, long and short of the story was, uh, and these were Athabascan Indians, I believe, came to these two white uh, trappers that they had known, and they talked about this creature uh, they called Gilyuk, and they said uh, it wasn't interested in caribou, it hunted men. So... You have written stories from natives, and you have, you know, current things being told to us by native folks. Well, let's face it. Uh, we're a lot easier to catch than a caribou or a deer. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Well, and there's one other element to all of, all of this, and that is, uh, well, we've talked about it many, many times, and that is how people who've had a real encounter with one of these things, had a real sighting. We've, we've never talked to one who said, oh my goodness, most wonderful thing I've ever experienced in my life. I can't wait to do it again. And then there's the people and who have gotten within proximity of these things. I, I put myself in that category. And you get just a sense of dread before you see anything. And why is it that people get this, uh, you know, we, we haven't been able to, put our finger on why is there some biomechanism in the body that you know almost like a you know premonition of danger but you know we've we've talked to an elk hunter in colorado this is a couple of years ago he's wearing a full face camouflage and he had this absolute sense of dread and all of a sudden out of the tree line comes an elk it ran towards him and bolted past him and for a moment he said oh that's what it was and then he you know, reason kicked in. He's like, no, wait a second. I'm hunt- I'm hunting the elk. And then out of the tree line came a Sasquatch. And he felt, this is interesting, he felt that it was a little bit baffled by his camouflage netting over his face because it couldn't really see his face mm-hmm. or his eyes. But he had had that sense, that premonition of some sort of impending doom that, you know, we hear about. Uh, frequently enough so um yeah 
that's I think that's an interesting element to all this. I think it's an ancient genetic imprinting in us is what I think. I think it's the same thing with prey animals when they suddenly sense that uh, that there's a predator around. They don't even have to smell it or see it that they can suddenly sense that it's there. And I think there is an uh, ancient genetic imprinting in all of us that have been prey at one time or another. And we don't like it. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right. Um, this gentleman here, uh, I don't want to say, say he has a bone to pick, but he wants to say that, uh, you know, we, we don't believe, he says, I believe that Will and others on the show don't believe in the Albert Osman story. Uh, and again, we're respectful of everybody that comments, that writes into us. So, but he says, I assume based on the stories that you've reported and some of the missing 411 incidents and Indian reports that you believe events like Osman's do occur. And I think there's, I think there's a distinction here between people that have been taken by the creatures big difference. and somebody, yeah, the, a lot of differences could you kind of go over those real briefly right well i just repeat what renee de hinden told me and de hinden interviewed ostman he was in touch with him for more than 20 years until he passed away and he told me he didn't believe the story because the man that ostman had changed his story significantly over those 20 years uh, if you if you're telling a story from memory, <clears throat> there might be minor changes, but the major parts will be the same. Um, but his story changed fundamentally over the years. Renee said, and the part I see is you don't see this repeating in anywhere. No other people's stories, hundreds and hundreds of stories. There's nothing else like that one. It, it really stands out in left field. Um, the stories where the people are taken. Uh, they usually don't come back. It's usually not a happy ending. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they're not going to carry him uh, off alive. I don't believe they're going to kill him and then take him off. This exactly. is the one with the guy with the, everything in his sleeping bag, right? right. And we, we picked apart yeah. the details on that. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't hold water. And if people yeah. had thought and again, if people had thought originally, they would have looked at those minor details back then. Well, and one thing that you just said is, you know, we picked apart the details of the story, but which story? <laughs> well, true. You know? Well, I mean, th there are some some stories out there, and I, I know of one. I'm not going to talk about it, uh, but some of the fundamental fundamental facts of the story uh, that didn't actually exist make the story false. And in, in Ostman's case, the sleeping bag wasn't a sleeping bag like we think of a sleeping bag today. You know, it, it's just with him and all of his gear and rifle and everything in it, number one, that would have been a very uncomfortable way to sleep. But, um, you know, being packed off like a sack of potatoes wasn't going to happen in that type of a sleeping bag. Because right, those were made with snaps and things back then. It was a little more than a bedroll, basically. If that. Right, right. So, no. that to me, that just that just didn't work. <clears throat> you know, the point is that the creatures do take people, but um, you know, taking them to your camp 
I think it's a unique story with Osman. He's the only guy that we I've ever heard of that's been taken to one of their camps. He was entertained in a sense, or he was their entertainment, and then he managed to escape. It's you know that just doesn't doesn't wash. with all his stuff. Right. Well, what do you? No, he just took. No, he did take his stuff, didn't he? he had his backpack yeah. and his rifle. That's right. As opposed to the Bauman story, where when he found his partner killed by the creature, he was just struck by terror. And all he had was he took his rifle and he took off running. You know, that's kind of a kind of a stark contrast, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, this gentleman, Scott, says, I agree with Mr. Jevening about vocalizing to bring in a Bigfoot. The people don't know what they're talking about. Uh, if the original vocalization was a war cry, the person would be happy meal. So no question, but just a <laughs> interesting comment. That's a good point. Very good point. <laughs> okay. Okay. What do we have next? We have uh, this from Kirk. He says, and I'll comment on this and then ask for your guys' comment. Do you think if Elon Musk were to get behind proving the existence of Sasquatch once and for all, whether would it would be a live capture or whatever, and he was willing to offer up unlimited resources to complete this, do you think it could actually be done? Well, we, for starters... We could do it. We could do it. And Elon, if you're listening, um, get a hold of us. We would accept, uh, we or anybody... Yeah, if you want to fund us to go out and do that, uh, we'll make it happen for you, and we'll get it on film. Yeah, it's not a joke. We can, <laughs> it's not a joke. We can do it. Right. Yeah. Um, so, there, that's that's the short answer. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> it is true. Okay, next question. All right, next one's coming up here. Okay. Uh, okay, this is Bob from Southern Oregon, and he was on our show recently, and says he's trying to get caught up on recent episodes, so thank you, Bob. We really we appreciate that. Do you think they're substantially affecting their, okay, uh, the growing prevalence of wildfires, which are becoming bigger more often in more areas and of longer duration? If, if that isn't true, I mean, Northern California, look at that, Oregon, uh, just in my area alone, we had close to 180,000 acres uh, burned, and I thought it was, you know, really f for no good reason. Um, do you think that these fires are substantially affecting their movements through the wilderness along their traditional routes? It, it could change some of the patterns if they're in an area where they're using a regular pattern, but, you know they've been around the continent a long time so fires they're pretty used to all that so i'm sure that they they have alternate things they do when an area is burned okay and then he goes on he says if so how long do you think it would be before they could return to those roots and areas could they could they be getting pushed into more areas that have not been previously encountered which I don't know if we know the exact answer to that, but well, here's here's the thought. Now these guys behave usually in a kind of an annual cycle. I mean, their ranges are big. They'll come to an area and you hear this time and time and time again. And I've seen it when I followed that group around for twelve years. 
The area was really big. They would only come back to one place during one month of the year. And so on as they moved on their 14-day cycle through these regions. So if an area is burnt, let's say it's burnt just after they've passed through it. And within a year's time, all that vegetation is going to grow back. In fact, even thicker. So those leafy plants are going to attract a lot of animals like deer and things that eat them. So there's going to be an abundant food supply back in that area when they come back through the following year. Yeah, and you know, I I watch a documentary with um, a brief one with a Forest Service biologist, and in in a sense, it kind of brought a little bit of comfort to the fact that the forest gets burned, and that is it it brings on a whole new eco cycle. You know, you get more foxes, you get more owls, you get more snowshoe hares and a lot of that sort of thing for about a little over a decade. So there's a whole new cycle. So I guess in that sense, it it brings about a whole new cycle, but we're not going to see those big, massive trees, you know, in our lifetime again in that area. Well, and oftentimes it doesn't completely destroy a lot of those trees. They, I mean, they, they will get burnt, but some of them, I mean, you get a lot of new growth. That's you know, that's the real, it's a real benefit actually to forests when they do have these natural fires. But the Sasquatch. Yeah, and some of the trees. Yeah, the Sasquatch are going to adjust their behavior accordingly. Well, he, he continues on. He says, uh, he was just wondering if it could cause them to become more aggressive, uh, knowing that they're, you know, that they're, some of their habitat has been lost. I, I don't think that would have cause them to be more aggressive. Forrest, what do you think? Well, I don't think so, uh, necessarily, because, uh, I, you know, having lived in Alaska, I I saw what the devastation the, the forest fires can, can do to uh, forest areas, and usually within a year, you've got those uh, uh, low-growing plants and grass coming back, so your elk, deer, uh, caribou and that area would be back in there browsing because they're browsers they eat those uh, leafy low shrubby plants so um, I can't imagine that the, uh, the behavior of a Bigfoot would change that much in a year's time because you know they obviously move from uh, area to area to area and when they come back they they still got the prey there to eat so why would they be more aggressive probably probably more prey than what they had before yeah exactly and you know what's to get mad at a natural disaster <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. yeah i don't think they you know and again this is strictly my opinion i don't i think that they would necessarily be able to to um rationalize that concept you know uh and, and again it's like other wildlife they they've been used to forest fires for <laughs> you know untold eons and they simply adjust to them. Yeah, they just go with flow. Yeah. All right. Well, we got a question here, and this is from Danny. So, Danny, hello, and uh, he's uh, he's a regular listener and a regular commenter, and he has some really good questions. Danny wants to know if we if Google Earth would be a good tool to find to increase the chances of seeing one of the creatures, and he emphasizes again. And try to figure out their annual route. And I'll just say. Did we lose Tom? I, I, he was going to ask. He was going to say something. No, 
I, I thought maybe I had gotten disconnected again. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, there you are. Again, it's the, yeah, it's the miracle of modern technology. I have no idea why. Okay, so I was just going to say that Google Earth is a it's a fantastic tool, and uh, you know, prior to its existence, uh, we really didn't have anything like that. So I would have to say it's a great tool for not only looking for these creatures, but for all sorts of research into the wildlands, you know, in the wilderness. Well, I, I, my input would be, I think it would be difficult to use it that way because, you know, you're not getting regularly updated photographs of areas. You know, I guess it depends on when the satellites go over those areas and, you know, the frequency and, and how often they update the system. Yeah, I don't think you're going to use it to go in and find... Say, look, there's one right there. I see it. My goodness, look at that thing. There's a group of them. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's. Uh, I guess. I guess what I was trying to say is, I think it's it's useful in the sense that you can go through and take a look at the, the foliage, and you can look to some extent. I really don't see, I'm, you know, like getting down to the granularity of, game trails and that sort of thing. I don't know if you can really, do that. And, and one of the other things. So here I am, kind of backtracking on my previous statement. Um, the pixelization, that. Google Earth does in some areas where they basically take and they create these 3D trees through and basically I believe the way the algorithm works. So Google, if you're listening, I apologize if I got this wrong, but it's taking elements from an entire area. So it doesn't take one tree and create a 3D image of it. It takes elements from all the trees around and then creates a tree, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like you the way get the our 3D effect, but it's <laughs> what's that? It's kind of like the way our our brain interprets what we see. Yeah, um, but it's not an accurate representation of the trees of the area. What well, so, can I ask? But you it's good at shadows. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Uh, Tom, I know uh, that you and Will have uh, Google Google Earth to my place. At any point in time, have you ever even seen the horses on those? I can't say I have, no. No. Well, um, I, think, I think that's a prime example because we know the horses are here. <laughs> I mean, there's 28 head of them here. Good point. And, uh, and I have never, in the times that y'all have sent me pictures to, to analyze and say this is this and that's that, ever seen one of my horses show up on the picture. Yeah, so, that's a great uh, point. I think, I think that right there is a, a good point to, to be made. So who knows when those satellites are coming over. Um, I haven't you know, even seen my car in line. <laughs> well, you can. And one of the... It's it's a tool, okay? It, if you didn't have it, I think it's better to have it than to not have it. But it's, Yeah, that's true. We're talking about the limitations and one of the features that I find interesting is the historic slider. You, know, you can go in and you can slide back and forth. And there's an area that, well, you and I are familiar with. It doesn't show up until you hit the historic slider. And oddly enough, it takes you from the current active view. And it, instead of going back in time, it actually pushes you forward 12 months in time. And you see some some terrain features that you didn't see before. So... You know, it's it's a good tool. It is. I like it. Yeah, it has its uses. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left. What do we have in the way of questions? Okay. 
Um, on a previous show, it was mentioned that some Indian tribes have actually made explicit treaties or agreements uh, with the Sasquatch to avoid conflict and territorial disputes. Um, if true, it's it's incredible and really important. Now, I he, he wants to, this person wants to know how the how the uh, agreements were reached and did they use a language or that sort of thing. I'm going to comment on somebody I spoke to here in Oregon about this very topic. And he said that the elevation that he lived at was one specific elevation. And he's talking about the Native Americans in that in that region years ago. You know, we're talking, you know, like two, three hundred years ago. And they were being invaded by the creatures. And finally, they drew the drove the creatures to a much higher elevation to like 5,000 feet. And basically that was an agreement. That was the understanding was that we, we have this area here. And as long as you don't come in and bother us, we're not going to go to these other higher elevations. And I think that's kind of what this person also mentioned talking about the, uh, the Chinook Treaty. And, and that's what the folks at the Klamath Reservation told me. They drove the creatures out of the lower areas, the hunting areas, to the higher elevations. And, and that's kind of the the agreement is you don't come down here, we won't go up there. It also showed when we were doing the occult investigation for nine months, <clears throat> we observed certain boundaries and so did the creatures. And when it was, it was kind of developed over this consistent behavior, we would not go out into their areas at night. When we were there at night, we would stay in the confines of the, of the fenced yard and never violated that. And they also obviously were watching us and they didn't come into the yard at night, but we could go out there in the daytime when they were gone, but not at night. You know, and that brings up an interesting question. If we are unaware of that treaty that was made, you know, centuries ago, maybe two, 300 years ago by the Klamath or whichever tribe. But now the forest service is out there. They're creating trails or doing logging, you know, do the creatures. And this is a hypothetical. I don't think we can answer it, but I wonder if they might view that as well. They're violating their treaty. They're into the deal. (laughs) We can violate ours. Well, they would, I think they would understand that those people are not the native people. They made this or had this, situation going with i won't say make a treaty they had a situation going with them uh forest what do you how would any of this apply to other primates i mean in terms of going out and observing observing them well you know all primates uh gorillas chimpanzees um any that i can think of have their territories and i think that once a parameter is established um you know, we've, we've talked in the past about the wars between gorillas and tri- uh, chimpanzees when they've actually, uh, uh, with most generally, it's chimpanzees that break the, the, the treaties, so to speak. Um, and, I mean, there's nothing verbal. There's nothing like they sit in and have a powwow and, and say, okay, here's the line and don't cross it. But it's just an understanding. And I think, you know, when I hear these things about the natives, um, you know, I can't 
you know, none of us can say, well, they didn't sit down and have a, a powwow and, and talk to them, but that's kind of when it leads you to believe that. But I don't think that's exactly what happened. I think uh, it's more like what you were explaining, that they, they drove them up into a certain area, and it was like, don't, don't, cross, don't cross this line, and this won't happen to you. And on the same token, don't cross over into their territory, and that won't happen. You know, something bad won't happen to you. And, and this is something that most primates have the 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 not the knowledge and the 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 cranial the 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 brain power to understand you know uh those parameters set out i mean it happens all the time with uh you know humans crossing into their territories and they they realize that uh, okay well people are now coming into our area uh creating problems for us to forage and such so we have to we're going to have to move elsewhere and uh it it's just a kind of an understanding that is reached between uh, humans and uh, the primates, or you know, primates and other primates. Yeah, I think so I think the fun more of an understanding rather than sitting. I think than uh, than a sit down powwow and say, okay, because then you got you got to uh, what you're you're stating is to me that I don't think is true, but that they have a language and uh, you're communicating in their language and uh, they're understanding your language. And I don't necessarily think that is all that that's true. I, I think it probably goes to the basis that all primates are territorial, like you said, and it's kind of a primary thing in their thinking that we have, we have this established area, you know, and it, it's, it's a boundary. And, right. and again, like you said, if, you know, you don't violate the boundary, we won't violate the boundary. So it's kind of an unspoken agreement. And I think that's the, that's the basis. It's an unspoken agreement. Exactly. It's just an understanding. It's an understanding, you know? right. Well, I was actually hoping that the Bigfoot had their own set of attorneys and judges and uh, could have sit down with black robes and wigs and <laughs> have a discussion. <laughs> Milo, do you have anything you want to input while we we still have some time? No, I'm I'm good. I'm 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 still on my meds, man. So okay, I hate. I was just happy to be back. Yeah, Milo had some had some me, uh, medical issues for a while, so we're glad to have you back, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, two more questions. I've got. I hope I'm pronouncing this name correctly. Looks like Margot. Uh, Margot wants to know number one. Well, you've indicated that Bigfoot are more active in the late summer and fall. And what are they doing during that time period? Is it moving around hunting for meat versus vegetation? Why fall and late summer uh, are they doing that? And then question number two is, do you think Bigfoot hibernate in the winter, whether a full sleep like bears or just a reduced sleep like squirrels? Well, we'll deal with the second one first. They don't hibernate. They're not. They're not bears. Um, no primate hibernates. So they're and they are active through the winter. They're just in in higher ground. So as far as the first question goes, yeah, they're an, an example of this. Their 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 feeding is sort of ramped up through the summer and fall, prior to winter. And again, it's like bears and other animals do this too. They'll feed heavier during those time periods in anticipation of winter coming and leaner uh, food availability. They hunt primarily. Vegetation is a supplement. It's not a primary food source for them. Uh, they supplement their diets with vegetation. Um, 
let me think. There was something else I was going to say there. Um, oh, an example of this. And I've been told by people in different regions where there are heavy salmon runs that the creatures in the fall, when the salmon are running heavy, they will go right through groups of people like they're oblivious to them to get to that food source. They're that focused on it. Well, bears do that in Alaska. I mean, right. they'll sit right there while fishermen are fishing on the shore. I mean, you're talking about big old grizzly bears, and they're, they have absolutely, uh, it's like uh, the humans are invisible. You know, they just go right for the salmon, and uh, you can be sitting there 10 feet from them fishing, and they won't bother you. You know, yeah. they could care less that you were there. Exactly. I had a, but, a, I had an older couple in northern Washington tell me this a few years back. They they contacted me and they said, you know, there'd be people out there uh, along this river and the Sasquatch would come right down there and, and be oblivious to the people because they were going after the salmon. Well, and, a, you know, Bigfoot is primate. Primates have to have a lot of uh, protein to power that big brain and uh, uh, the protein sources, the highest protein source is going to come from meat. And uh, of course your salmon are absolutely uh, rich in uh, oil and um, they're, they're a fabulous source for putting on fat on those grizzlies. And and I'm sure the Bigfoot too up there in those areas. Oh, and you you hear, and there are uh, stories written about it where, you know, especially with native peoples where the Sasquatch would come and raid their, where they had fish drying. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, you know, we do hear a lot of stories about uh, the Bigfoot have a real interest in not only fish, but shellfish, you know, the the coastal <laughs> ones going out and digging clams and that sort of thing. So In Skamania County, I, I made a circuit. <clears throat> it's part of how I found the pattern of these creatures' movement in that area. Uh, there was a... Uh, gentleman I met up there who was a retired Marine Corps uh, commission officer and he was telling me that his neighbor and, and I mentioned what he did because it, you know he was a very credible person told me about his neighbors who were regular hunters they had a shed they built there where they would hang their kills the deer kills and things to to cure and there was a particular time and I can't remember if it was must have been October <clears throat> about the time they were putting fresh meat in there that this group of Sasquatches would every year at that same time would try to break into that shed. And it wasn't just one, it was usually a group of them and and scared the family numerous times. So, you know, they were coming after meat. We have one more question, Tom? I think that's that's it for this show. All right. Well, Milo, Forrest, do you guys have any last words you'd like to put in? I just think be back on that's cool glad to have you back milo forrest i don't think so i'm glad to see you're back and uh doing better milo thank you thank you all right <clears throat> tom do you have any last words yeah i just want to say milo good to, good you're doing better <laughs> we were a little concerned about you we hadn't heard from you for quite a while yeah and i do want to say that these are excellent questions so Please keep them coming. They keep our topic alive, and they keep us on our toes. So send them to questions at creekdevil.com or comments. And we don't mean to rant on some of these topics. It's just some of them Some of them are really kind of irritating because of the level of ridiculousness. And not by the person say, or sending the questions, by the people who come up with these ideas. 
So having said that, um, folks, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, Wildwood, California, January 1966. The Reading Record searchlight reported that Bob Kelly and Archie Bradshaw saw Bigfoot peering in their cabin window at 2 a.m. and saw big tracks in the snow. W.L. Hampton, Platina, told Jim McLaren that many people saw the tracks 15 to 18 inches long and 30 inches deep in snow, but with long strides. He said Mr. Kelly shot at the thing with a shotgun and thought he hit it. The trail led to Hayford Creek. Welcome. This interview is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. On October 20th, 1967, at a place known as Bluff Creek, California, two men captured on film a creature that has been the source of much controversy ever since. There have been many theories and claims regarding this film, some supportive and some claiming hoax. The following interview by John Green of Bob Gimlin on videotape at Gimlin's home in Yakima, Washington in 1992 recounts events in Gimlin's own words. Green This is John Green talking to Bob Gimlin in his home in Yakima, Washington. This is with regard to the movie that Bob and his friend Roger Patterson made 25 years ago in Northern California, Bluff Creek area, but we'll start a little further back than that. Now, you've known Roger for a long time, haven't you? Gimlin. Yes, I knew Roger in the early 1960s. I met Roger about 1958-59. Green. So that was before he got interested in Bigfoot? Gimlin. Yes, I can't recall just exactly when he did start talking to me about Bigfoot, but It was probably in the early 1960s. Green. Did you go out with him at all, looking into this? Gimlin. Yes, Roger and I had gone out many times in different areas, and over in the Mount St. Helens area, and actually up in this area here, because there was a fellow who said he sighted one right up here at Cowich Canyon, which is about 20 miles from here. I went up there with Roger on that investigation, Of course, we covered as many of them as we could when they'd call or somebody would give us a report on something that's happening in the area. Roger and I rode horseback in the mountains quite a bit because I was training the horses at the time. Of course, I rode a lot in the mountains, and Roger would go along with me, and he'd play tapes and talk to me about the creature. I was a skeptic in those days. I trusted Roger's thoughts and his knowledge but I wasn't really convinced that they existed. Green. How did you come to take this particular trip to California? Gimlin. Well, Roger and I had been over in the Mount St. Helens, riding the roads and just more or less going by the Lava Rock Caves and things when we came back from here. Well, let's go back a little here. It started raining real heavy over there, and Uh, This was in the last part of August and the first part of September. When we got back to the Yakima area, 
Somebody in California had phoned Roger's wife and left a message that there had been tracks sighted on the new roads that they'd been pushing back into the Bluff Creek area and that they were building logging roads into. So that was the reason that we went into that area. Green. Did Roger usually carry a movie camera with him? Gimlin. Yes. Most of the time he had a camera that I can recall. I wasn't much on cameras, but Roger did have a camera, and prior to that he had been working with a guy up in this area here that that's, well, when he bought the camera. I knew he had that camera. He usually kept it in his saddlebags on his horse. Green. Well, when you went to California, did you have some definite time you were going to spend there? Gimlin. Yes. Well, we didn't know exactly, because I was working construction at that time, and I was in between jobs, so I said, yes, I can take off and go down there. I cannot recall the exact amount of time I was going to stay down there with him, but we stayed longer than I planned on staying. In fact, we stayed a week longer than I planned. Green. How long were you there? Gimlin. Well, I think we were down there, California, a total of three weeks. Green. And what were you traveling with? Gimlin. I had a one-ton truck with a horse van on it to haul the animals and all of our equipment. Of course, we took all of our supplies to stay as long as we need to stay, you know, the hay, the grain, our own food, because once we got in there, we never went into town. Green. How many horses did you have? Gimlin. We had three horses, two saddle horses and a pack horse. I had a saddle horse, and Roger had a saddle horse, and of course we had a small pack horse along. Green. What was Alda Atley's role in all this? Gimlin. Well, Alda Atley was Roger Patterson's brother-in-law, and he backed Roger financially with whatever expenses it took to go to these places. He was supposed to help me on some of the expenses, which I never did receive. Green. So you provided the truck and the gimlin. Yeah, and the fuel, and my own horse, and my own food. The agreement when we left on any of those investigations was that whatever Roger spent, that we would split up on the expenses and with me, but Alda Atley was backing Roger because Roger didn't have a job at that particular time. Green. So, in fact, he only financed Roger. He didn't finance your share at all? Gimlin. No, he didn't finance my part of the trip at all. I had my own horse, my own equipment, and my own food. Well, I didn't expect somebody else to support me on that. It would have been nice if I could have gotten part of the fuel and expenses on the truck. Green. So you went into an area where you heard the tracks had been seen fairly recently? Gimlin. Yes, just prior to the time we had gotten there, they had sighted tracks on that Tuesday after being off over the Labor Day weekend. It had also started raining all up and down the West Coast. By the time we got down there, these tracks supposedly were three different sizes, and they were just, well, globs in the mud as far as I was concerned. We couldn't get any plaster cast definition of them at all. Green. I never realized that you went down there for that specific set of tracks, Gimlin. Yes, that's the reason we went into that area. I wasn't real anxious to go down there because 
Well, I needed to go back to work. But Roger kept saying these guys were pretty good down in that area. I uh, can't remember the fellow's name that, uh, that called up here. Green. Probably Al Hogson. Gimlin. Yeah, that was a, that was it. It's uh, Al Hogson. But there was somebody else who had called Roger, too. A guy that worked for the Forest Service. Green. Sil McCoy, maybe? Gimlin. Yes, I think that was his name. Yeah, McCoy. Something like that. Of course, it took me a while around here to get things ready so my wife could do my chores because I had animals at that time. And to be able to feed them and take care of them to be gone that long, why, I had to make provisions for her to take care of the animals. Green. That was interesting because, uh, well, I was there. I saw those tracks that you're referring to. When I was there, Al Hoxson told me that he was expecting Roger. Well, maybe he'd called him already by then. Gimlin. Yeah, may have. Green. I took that to mean that Roger already had a trip there planned before that. Gimlin. Uh-huh. Well, I don't recall whether he had a trip planned prior to the call or not. In fact, I don't think he did. Like I said, we'd been in the Mount St. Helens area, and when I came back here, I was going to go back to work in two weeks. And then I talked to him, Roger, again. We said that we were kind of in between jobs, so we can take a couple weeks off. And that's mainly the reason I went down and Roger went with me, because, you well, know, it was my equipment. Green. So what did you do when you got there? Gimlin. Well... First, we set up camp, of course. Then the way we do is just ride the roads. When these guys were working on the roads with bulldozers and everything, as quick as they'd quit working, we'd ride up and down in that area and search for tracks or whatever we'd run into. Then we would take the one-ton pickup truck and when the equipment's off the road, so we'd drive the roads. We would drive the roads at night real slow, looking for tracks crossing the road. Of course, in the daytime, we couldn't drive on the roads because, well, they were working on the roads up in there. They had started logging in some areas, and the logging trucks had started coming down from there. We covered as many miles as we could with the amount of time that we had. We could only go out so far, and we had to go back to camp. I mean, we did ride back to camp and use the truck to drive the roads at night. Green. What happened on this particular day? Gimlin. The day we got the film footage, I left early in the morning and Roger slept in. I just rode out and around. I always got up early and so I rode on out. My horse loosened a shoe and I came back in to tack the shoe on tighter. About ten o'clock, mid-morning or so, I sat around there for a little while because Roger was gone when I got back. Supposedly he had gone down the creek there, uh, Bluff Creek, there and after a while, he came back and asked what area I had covered that morning. I told him, and he says, Well, why don't we ride up into this area we had ridden into before? A desolate-type area down a couple of canyons. There's a creek running through it. So we went ahead and fixed lunch. And he said, Well, let's get our gear together so when we ride out, we can stay if we have to and stay a little bit later into the night if we need to. Well... We packed up the pack horse, and it was about midday, perhaps a little bit after noontime, when we went around this bend in the creek bed. There was a fallen tree, 
and as we came around it, there was this creature standing by the creek. That's when everything started happening. The horses started jumping around, raising the devil and spooked from this creature. Well, Roger, well, his horse was rearing up and jumping round. He slid off him, got his camera out in the saddlebag, and uh, he started trying to get pictures of this creature as it was walking away. The film footage that you see, the Patterson film, is what was acquired from that particular sighting in the few seconds that we had to take pictures with. And then Roger ran out of film in the camera. The reason for him running out of film was as we were riding up there, we just took our time and fooled around. It was in the fall of the year. The maple trees were turning red, and it was kind of pretty, and Roger was taking pictures of me riding up the canyons, pictures of the trees, and photographing the surrounding areas. So when this all happened, we didn't have much film left in the camera, unfortunately. Some of us kind of blurry because he was running across a creek to get a better view, a closer view of the creature in a better way and get more pictures of it. When he did run out of film, well, naturally it was one of those old cameras that he had to get under a poncho to change the film. We went to catch his horse and the pack horse because I kept my horse under control. I had my horse with me all the time. So we caught his horse, got the new film out of the saddlebags, he got under his old poncho and changed the film around. Then we tried to track the creature on up from where we'd just seen it. He didn't have much luck doing it. Then we decided it was getting late in the afternoon. In that area, that time of year, the sun goes down about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. We wanted to get back and take plaster casts of the tracks and then go on into town to see if we had anything on film. We weren't sure from Roger stumbling and falling on the sandbar and getting up and running. We didn't even have an idea that we had anything on film at that time. In fact, it was doubtful that we did have anything. Green. So you cast the tracks the same day? Gimlin. Yes, we did. In fact, right that afternoon. By the time we got the tracks cast and the different deals that we did to cast the tracks done, well, it was getting late. It was almost dark by the time we got back to the truck and got the horses fed and tied up. By the time we got into town at Al Hogson's store, it was good and dark. I imagine it was oh, about 8.30, 9 o'clock. Then we went on over to oh, whatever town that was to mail the film up to Al Diatley, Roger's brother-in-law, so he could take it and get it developed to see if there was really anything on the film. Okay, I'll uh, go back a little bit to the casting of the tracks. I rode the big horse. The horse that I was riding was around 12, 1,300 pounds. I rode him alongside the tracks with this new film in the camera. Roger took pictures of how deep the horse's prints were in the soil compared to the creature's tracks. Then I got up on a stump, which was approximately three to four feet, you know. We didn't measure it. Probably should have. Anyway, I jumped off with a high-heeled boot as close to the track as we could. Then we took pictures of that to illustrate the depth that my footprint went into the same dirt with the high-heeled cowboy boot. And, well, at that time, I weighed 165 pounds. These were all things that we did prior to leaving the scene. It was a good thing we did, because that night, when we came back, of course, we were pretty excited about 
just seeing it, and we sat there and talked about it until 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Around 5.30 a.m. or so, it started raining, and it was just a pouring down rain. I told Roger we better get up there and do something about the tracks or they'd wash out. And he said, no, it stopped raining after a while. Well, I went on ahead and got up and put the saddle on my horse and decided I'd ride up there while it was raining really hard. And Roger says, ah, it'll quit. Don't ride up there. I said, no, I'm going to go ahead and ride on up there. Well, I'd gotten a couple of cardboard boxes for Mr. Hawkson to cover up these tracks the night before. So I went outside to get the couple of boxes that we'd folded up out there. Oh, they were just soggy old pieces of cardboard. I disregarded taking those back up there, so I rode back up to the scene, pulled some bark off some trees and covered up the tracks as best I could and then went back to camp. By then, we decided it wasn't going to quit raining. The little creek that was six or seven feet across was now ten or twelve feet across and four feet deep. We were on the side of the creek, which had to be crossed with a truck to get out to the main road. I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and get across the creek with the truck and get started out. And of course, Roger thought it would stop raining, and he suggested I leave him there and come back and pick him up. Well, in the meantime, why, uh, they had called the track dog people in Canada, and they were supposed to come down. I think they also phoned you, Mr. Green, and Renee DeHinden. I'm not sure when all that happened, but I do remember the people in Canada had been called with the track dogs to come on down to see if we could track it up through the mountains from where we last saw it. Green. Yeah, I think it was BC Museum that called, because that was the people who phoned me. Gimlin. Was that it? Oh, I, I couldn't recall just exactly how that went. Green. A man from the museum had come down with me at the beginning of September, come down after I was there and told them the tracks were there. Gimlin. Oh, was that it? Okay, well, I don't remember just exactly how those sequences happened. Green. Yes, well, it was from him I learned of the movie. The call must have gone to the museum. Gimlin. Oh, must have, yeah. Well, Roger didn't do that. I think it was Al Hogson. I think Roger had talked to him about the calling. Well, they had talked about it, but I was not present at the time they did. Green. About how far was it from your camp to where this, uh, Gimlin? Oh, a calculated guess, I think. It was about four miles. Green. That movie you took, comparing the depths of the tracks, that would be the one that you showed the University of British Columbia? Gimlin. Yes, that's the one showed in British Columbia. Green. Are you aware that that movie has been missing almost ever since? Gimlin. Yes, I am aware of that. I asked before Roger passed away, and his reply was that Alda Atley had that somewhere. He didn't tell me exactly where. He, Roger said that Al has the film in his possession somewhere. Of course, I asked Alda Atley about it, and he denied having it and denied it ever existed. That seems strange to me, because I knew it existed, and Roger knew it existed. Green. And so did all the people at the University of British Columbia, huh? Gimlin. Exactly. See, so why the film disappeared, I'll never know and probably never find out. 
Green. Sounds almost as if Al lost it. Gimlin. Yeah, or sold it. Who knows what happened to it? Green. Well, you'd think if it had been sold, it would have shown up sometime. Gimlin. Well, you know Al and Roger toured with that film afterwards, and it's hard telling what went on in those days. And, of course, Roger made some deal with American National, which I never did know. Green. But you know Rene DeHinton and I were the first people to make a deal for the use of the film itself. Al brought to Seattle the film of the creature, and a great deal of footage of that Roger had taken of the waterfalls and the trees and various things like that. The footprint film was supposed to be there, but it wasn't. Gimlin. Was it supposed to be on the same roll of film? Green. Oh, no. Gimlin. It was just a different roll of film then, eh? Green. Well, I don't remember now if he brought it in a lot of little boxes or whether the film had already been spliced. Gimlin. Yeah, I see. Green. But anyway, we showed it expecting to find the footprint film, but it wasn't there. Gimlin. Yes, but as I didn't know much about movie cameras or splicing film or any of that sort of thing, well, anybody could have shown me the film and I wouldn't have been able to detect a splice, except I knew what was taken. We all saw it, you know? Of course, the film footage of the creature wasn't that good, but the other footage was plain. It was taken during the sunlight hours, and well, I thought it was good film. I don't know what you guys thought about it, but I thought it was a pretty good film. Green. Oh, yes. As I remember, I only saw it once, but it was perfectly clear, I thought. Gimlin. Well, I saw it at the same time you guys did. I don't really recall everything that happened way back then now. But, uh, of course, there's a lot of speculation at the time, and Roger and Al had big dollar signs in their eyes, you know? They were just going to go here and go there, and, well, we did travel a lot with that film. There was a lot of money spent. Of course, Argosy bought one article at that particular time. I think it was the fall of 1967. Argosy bought the article. After that, Al and Roger traveled with the film and promoted it somewhat. That was about the time I went back to work because I didn't have any income. They just kind of cut me out completely of the thing. It took me forever to, well, you know, kind of break even. After Roger died, I had to go to court to get any rights and all out of it, which, you know, was kind of an odd thing. But between Mrs. Patterson's attorney and her, it was a deal where they did not recognize that I had any interest at all in the film. At one time, I was supposed to be one-third partner on everything that happened, if there was money coming in, but then that all changed. The film itself, now maybe Al lost it, I really don't know what happened to that film footage where Roger and I took film of the tracks and my boot tracks and the horses and so forth. Green. Remember how deep the horse tracks were compared to that of the Sasquatch tracks? Gimlin. Well, the horse tracks were not as deep as the Sasquatch tracks, of course. I just walked the horse through. I walked him as slow as I could, but you figure he was distributing his weight on four feet. The tracks were better than half as deep, but they weren't as deep as the tracks of the creature. Green. 
but the area of the four hoofprints wouldn't be any greater than two of those footprints, would it? Gimlin. No. No, the hoofprint area, if you're familiar with sizes of horses' hoofprints, well, the horse wore a size one shoe, which is not quite six inches in diameter, probably more like five inches in diameter with a number one shoe on the front foot. The shoes were a little smaller on the back feet. They were size ones trimmed down is what they were. Of course, I rode the horse too, so there was my extra weight plus the horse's weight plus the saddle and the tack and everything I had on him. There was probably a total weight of about you know, 1,400 pounds. Green. How about when you jumped off the stump? Gimlin. Now, when I jumped off the stump with a high heel boot in the dirt, the footprint went almost as deep as the creature's footprint. We didn't exactly measure. We didn't have a ruler. We just took pictures of it. Viewing it, the film, you could actually tell better for depth. By looking at it and making a judgment on the side of it, well, it wasn't as deep as the creature's footprint. They weren't exactly side by side either. There were probably two or three feet between my track and the creature's track, but there was some distance between them. The soil was practically the same. That soil had all been washed in there from the flood a year prior. There could have been some variation in the soil. We really didn't get into it that deep. It was a thing where, well, we were pretty excited about it and all, and there was a time element there to get all these things done before dark. Green. You know when you walked around the tracks, when you took that movie, your boot tracks were there too, weren't they? Gimlin. Yes, right. We walked around it quite a bit, trying to stay out of the tracks as much as possible. Green. But still, you would have been close then. Gimlin. Oh yeah, just walking. We were close, but the boot prints lacked a whole lot going as deep. Considerable amount going as deep as the creature's tracks were. Green. Going back now to what happened when you first saw the creature, how did it come into view? Gimlin. You mean when we first saw it, John? Green. Did you come around a corner, or did you see it from a distance, or... Gimlin. No, it wasn't exactly a corner. We came around a bend. We were riding the creek beds, is what we were doing, and so when we came around the bend in the creek, well, this thing was standing alongside the creek, standing there upright. We were about 60 to 80 feet away from it when we first saw it. Then, at different times, we were different distances from it. At one time, I was probably as close as 60 feet to it when I rode across the creek and got off my horse. When Roger ran across the creek, well, the thing immediately started walking away. Then, whenever it was that the horses started spooking and throwing fits, well, the commotion started and the creature just started walking away. Green. So, it was standing when you first saw it? Gimlin. Yeah, it was standing still, right at the edge of the creek when we first saw it. Yes. Green. Right at the edge? Gimlin. Right by the edge of the creek, yes. Green, but fully upright. Gimlin, fully upright, standing upright, yes. Green, what exactly did the horses do? Gimlin, well, Roger was in the front, and his horse tried to spin around and come back. I was in riding behind him on the big horse, leading the pack horse along. My horse was kind of spooky, but not near as bad as Roger's horse. 
Roger's horse was a spooky little horse. He was young, and uh, the horse I was riding was an older cow horse, been roped on and used for a lot of things. Roger's horse threw all kinds of fits, and when Roger got off the horse, he ran off, and the pack horse jerked free from me and ran off back down the way we came. Green, did Roger's horse buck? Gimlin, no, it never did buck. Just reared and jumped all around. His horse was in front of me, and of course, I wasn't looking straight at him all the time. This all happened in a couple of heartbeats, you know. It happened fast. Green, but then Roger's horse didn't go down. Gimlin, no, it didn't fall down, just reared up is all. Green, well, because this has been said since, you know, that Roger's horse fell down. Gimlin, no, no, his horse never did fall down, no. Green, okay, well, that's interesting. So, did he get the camera while he was still on the horse? Gimlin, yes, while he was stepping down off the horse. Um, well, a lot of people have asked me about that and they probably don't realize the agility that Roger had. He was a tremendous athlete. Roger had tremendous agility. He had been a rodeo rider and did gymnastics, and this wasn't a full-size horse that Roger was riding either. It was a pony, a small horse. Green. Yeah, I've seen those little horses. He used to haul them in a Volkswagen bus. Gimlin. Yeah, we used to haul two of them in a VW bus. Roger rode these horses because they were easy to get on and off, and because Roger wasn't a very big man. So actually, when he was getting off his horse, he always kept that saddlebag ready. The saddlebag had two flaps on it to keep it buckled down. He kept one buckled and one of them unbuckled so he could get into his camera in the event that he needed it in a hurry. And this was the case at that particular time. Green. So... He practiced getting the camera out of the saddlebags in a hurry. Gimlin. Oh, yeah, lots of times. Yes, he did. That was his theory, that if he ever had to get it, um, keep one buckle on there so that it would not bounce out while he was riding, and the other one loose so he could get it out in a hurry. Green. Did Roger have a gun at all? Gimlin. Yeah. Roger had a three hundred three British rifle in his saddle scabbard, and... I had a thirty out six rifle in my saddle scabbard. Green. Did you have any expectation that you might see one? Gimlin. No, I surely didn't. I don't think Roger did either. We always carried rifles with us when we went into the mountains. At least I always did, and I'm sure Roger did too. Green. Had you discussed whether you would shoot at one of these creatures if you saw one? Gimlin. Yes, many times. We had talked about it, but decided unless it was necessary, we would never shoot. In other words, unless it was violent or attempted to attack us or something in that sense of the word, you know? Green. So when Roger was off his horse and ran after the creature with the camera, what did you do? Gimlin. Well, Roger said, cover me, as he pulled the camera out. Well, if they don't understand what that means, well, he didn't have any protection, just the camera in his hand and in case something were to happen. Well, what I did was ride across the creek, pull my rifle out of the scabbard, step down off the horse, and just stood there with my rifle. I never raised the rifle like I'd shoot or anything like that, just held it in my hand, and with the other hand I held my horse to keep him from getting away from me. Green. 
So there was never a gun pointed at the creature? Gimlin. No, never. I didn't point the rifle at the creature. Green. Did you ever feel like the creature was acting at all threatening? Gimlin. No, it kept walking away all the time. It turned and looked around once at Roger and once at me. The first time it turned and looked was the time that I rode across the creek. I was off to its right, behind it, and that is when it made one turn with its head. Then Roger relocated himself on a log, steadying the camera at one time. Then, when he ran to another position to get a better view and a better picture, the creature turned its head a second time, and I assume it was looking at Roger. When you view the film, I never could really decide whether it turned to look at me or Roger, because all these things happened tremendously fast, and I was trying to hold on to my horse and a rifle at the same time and also keep an eye on the creature and Roger. Green, do you have much of a mental image now of what you saw as opposed to what you saw in the movie since that time? Gimlin, well, I don't think that has changed much. Yes, I still have a mental image of what really happened that day. There may be a few things that I've overlooked or forgotten over the years, but basically the time of the day and how the thing moved and what we did is pretty much still in my mind, pretty exactly in my mind, because even though we were excited, you never seem to forget those things. Green. When you first saw it, how big did you think it was, Bob? Gimlin. Well, I thought it was about six and a half feet tall, and I would have guessed it weighed, you know, 250, 300 pounds. It did have tremendous muscle bulk. This was an estimated guess at the time, of course. I'm not used to seeing things like that. I was just guessing weight compared to the amount of muscle quarter horses have. It was as big as a quarter horse, naturally, and the height, because well, we were up on our horses at the time we first saw the creature. Therefore, it probably didn't look as tall as it really was. Now, the horse I was riding was a 16-hand horse. One hand is four inches on a horse. My horse was 16 hands tall, plus my saddle. That would make him approximately 16 and a half hands high. Now, of course, with me sitting up there, you can figure me eye level was about nine feet high. So anything actually less than nine feet, you'd be looking down on it. Green. Was it obvious whether it was a male or female? Gimlin. Well, it appeared to be a female, but, you know, I had never seen one. I had never even seen a track until that day, so I couldn't even make a statement whether it was male or female. But the film indicates that it had mammary glands, so we assumed it was a female. Now, they had told us that the tracks they had found in the road were three different sizes. We talked about that at length and discussed it assumed that, oh, well, there was a male, a female, and a younger one with those three different sized tracks. So our first assumption was it was a female. Green. What color did it appear to be to you? Gimlin. It was dark brown, brownish color. Green. Then it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film? Gimlin. No, it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film. Uh, it was... A uh, long ways from being tan, but it wasn't a very dark brown like it shows in the film. It was a lighter color brown. Of course, it was lighter in different areas of his body, too. I suppose there were the 
where the hair is shorter, it was lighter, and vice versa. It might have been darker where the hair was shorter. Green. Can you remember details on his face? Gimlin. Yes, I can. The face would have a flat-type nose. The lips, well, I can't really remember what the lips looked like, except it did have lips, and we could see its teeth. The eyes were large eyes, but not big round eyes like a horse or a cow, but they were large eyes. The hair on its face was short. There wasn't a whole lot of hair around its cheeks and down along the side of its face. Best I can remember is the face didn't have a whole lot of hair on it. Green. What would the skin color be then? Gimlin. It seemed like it was a brownish color skin. Green. Was it doing anything with his hands? Gimlin. You mean, uh, Green. Well, in the film, they were just swinging. Gimlin. Well, John, that is all I ever saw. Uh, It never raised its arms or anything to that effect. It just walked with an easy type motion away from us and swung its arms like a human being. The best I can remember is the hands were about the same color as the face. Green. The bottoms of its feet looked quite light colored, but that could be the sand. Gimlin. Yeah, I think that was the case. The sand wasn't a white sand. It was kind of a funny type soil there where the creature walked, and it was lighter colored dirt. I think you can remember the color of the soil, John. Green. Oh, yeah. Gimlin. It was pretty light colored soil in there, and might have been why the soles of the feet looked light in the film footage. Green. In the movie, it hasn't quite disappeared when the picture stops because. It looks as if it's about to disappear behind a big pile of, well, it looked like a stump or pile of wood or of some kind. Gimlin. Yeah, it hadn't disappeared when the film footage, uh, well, when Roger ran out of film, because it traveled on, oh, probably not half again the distance of where he, another 30 or 40 yards. There was some trees down in that area, I suppose from the flood and so forth. There were many fallen trees and different things in that area. Then when the creature did disappear up a little draw, why, I wanted to follow it. Of course, Roger didn't want to follow it because he was on foot and he didn't want to be left there. We thought there was possibility there were two others around. We didn't know at the time whether that was one of the ones that had made the tracks up above the scene or not. Roger was a little bit upset about that, so he wanted to catch his horse and get some more film in the camera. It took quite a while to catch the horse and to catch the catch horse as well and tie them up. Then we rode on in pursuit of the creature. Now see, the way it went to see if we could see more tracks, or I don't know, I thought maybe we could see this creature again. I don't really know why I was thinking that. We never did see it again, but... We saw the scuffs in the gravel and in the creek bed where that indicated where it possibly ran when it went out of sight. We measured 68 to 72 inches in the stride, which was not even close to accurate because it was, as I have said, just scuffs in the gravel. Then we tracked on up the creek bed quite a ways. We saw one wet half of a footprint on a rock as it went up into the mountains That was as far as it went with it. Green. So, there wasn't sand to show footprints beyond where you saw it? Gimlin. No, it was gravel mostly. 
but there was sand and dirt where it went across the creek, but it never left a footprint in the sand or in the dirt or soil. It did leave a wet mark on the rock in the creek where it went across and went on into the hills from there. Green. Were you ever close to it, closer to it than Roger was when he took the pictures? Gimlin. Yeah, I was. When I rode across the creek and got off my horse, I was closer than Roger was with the camera at the time. I rode fairly close to the creature. Green. And I suppose Roger wouldn't have had much of a look at it because, well, he was looking through the lens of the camera all the time. Gimlin. Well, yes, I feel that I had a better look at it. We talked about it, like I said, when we got back to the camp that night, when we stayed up and talked about it for hours, you know, talked about what each one of us had seen. There was things that I had seen about the creature that Roger didn't. Of course, he couldn't see it too well because he was looking through that camera. Green, when you got off the horse, what size did it appear to be then? Gimlin, well, to be plumb honest with you, I didn't even think about sizes at the time it was going away. It was large, but I never gave any thought to how high it was or how heavy it was because when it was moving away from me, that was about all that was in my mind at that time that this creature was of no threat to us, and, oh yeah, I was trying to keep my horse under control because, you know, I never had any idea what might happen, and I sure didn't want to be on foot. So, I knew I could get back on my horse, and maybe if I had to, well, if I had to, if I had to shoot it and it didn't go down, well, I could get on my horse and I could get out of there, and Roger would have to fend for himself. I'm not a coward, but... I'll be darned if I was going to stick around if this creature got violent, you know. So I was concentrating on keeping my rifle in my hand and my horse under control. Green. Well, there is, of course, this widespread opinion that it was um, some kind of masquerade having the film. Of course, there is a certain amount of blurring and a certain amount of underexposure of the creature itself. You can't see the face, for instance. You had a much better look at it than that. What was your impression? Gimlin. My impression is that there's a creature, and I don't feel it was a man in a suit. If it had to be a man in a suit, well, I don't know how they would have gotten him back there into that particular area. I have heard this story and thought about it many times. God, at one point with the film circulating all around and people criticizing... I was almost to the point of not even being sure myself. But I thought about it all these years, and I'm quite sure it wasn't a man in a suit. I saw the face. I saw the expression on its face. With all the muscles and arms and legs, I don't know how it could have been a man in a suit. Plus, I never had anything to do with a man in a suit, and, well, if Roger did, how would he know that I wouldn't shoot it? In my opinion... That creature was not a man in a suit. Green. Could you see the muscles move when it walked? Gimlin. Yes. I could see the muscles clearly, and that was one of the deciding factors, in my opinion, that it was no man in a suit. The thighs, the buttocks, the arms and shoulders, well, you could see it move clearly underneath the hair. Green. You had estimated this thing to weigh a great deal less than the horse, and yet the footprints were deeper. What explanation could you think of? 
Gimlin. Well, you asked my estimation when I first saw it. Green, no, no, but Gimlin. Oh, you mean afterwards? Well, God, John, there was no way of really knowing. We knew it had to be heavier than it appeared to be when we first saw it. Of course, we thought the horse's weight was distributed on four feet, and I'm not good with the mathematics of such things, but uh, if you figure 1,400 pounds of horse distributed on four feet, well, that'd be mm, 350, 400 pounds. So we figured it must have weighed much more than we originally figured. Of course, Roger did some research by going over to the zoo in Seattle, watched the gorillas there, and asked how much they weighed and so forth. They had one over there named Bobo, and I don't remember his weight exactly, but I do remember he weighed more than it looked like it weighed. Green, yes, I did the same thing with those gorillas. Gimlin, uh-huh. Green, and there was a female gorilla there that was quite small, but was tremendously heavy. Gimlin, yeah, John, that is what Roger was telling me. I wasn't all that interested at the time, whatever it was, you know. In the end, it probably weighed approximately 500 pounds to make such tracks and that deep in the dirt. Of course, when it walked, it kicked up a certain amount of dirt from the pressure of the toes pushing it away. Green. Well, you would have to distribute the weight on different parts of the foot when it walked. Otherwise, there's no way it could have made a deeper print than of the horse. Gimlin. Yeah, that's right. Green. If its feet were put down flat, each foot would have had oh, an area as big as three of the horse's feet. Gimlin. Yes. Green. You would have to roll that imprint in some way or another. Gimlin. Yeah, right. Green. So when you saw it, up until that moment, you had never seen a track? Gimlin. Never. Never seen a track at all. That's right. Green. And you weren't all convinced that there were any such animals to be seen? Gimlin. That is true. I was not convinced that they really existed. You know, I figure Roger must have had a reason. He showed me plaster casts, and I heard different stories from people who had seen them. So I thought, well, maybe there is something to this, but I just didn't believe in them, basically. Didn't believe it was possible that they could exist. Even after we got the film, many people said, ah, they don't exist. And still people tell me it's a bunch of malarkey, you know? There will always be a certain amount of people you just can't convince lest they see one. Green. Well, when you did see it, there wasn't any doubt that you were looking at an animal, was there? Gimlin. There's no doubt in my mind at all. Green. Well, okay. That ought to do it, Bob. Thanks a lot. Gimlin. You're quite welcome, John. That's the end of the interview. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs> <laughs>